Well, hello everyone. I am just so thrilled that you are here. If this is your first time listening to the show, my name is Andy and this is Magic Through My Eyes. This show is a Disney podcast all about the magic and wonder of Disney in all its unique expressions from my perspective. And I have just been having the time of my life. I it's just so, it's been so encouraging to hear um, everyone's feedback and everyone's just been so excited for me and excited to hear this content. And it just, it fills my heart with such joy. So if you've been a friend that's been reaching out, I just wanted to say thank you. And for those who are listening and coming back to listen, thank you. And if it's your first time here, welcome. Uh, it's gonna be an adventure and a wild and magical ride and I'm just so excited that you're here with me today. Last week's episode was the episode I've worked maybe the hardest on. It was so special to uh, sit down with my sister and talk all about our journey with our brother. That episode was called Disney with Autism and again the feedback we heard from that uh, was just beautiful and so encouraging and it really touched a lot of people so um, I hope you see that as an encouragement to not be afraid to share your story um, because it's powerful and I know that uh, you know our family story isn't just Disney but Disney's definitely attached to it because of our brother and today's episode is another very very special one I when I decided to start this podcast, I knew the first few episodes needed to really establish some context about who I was as a Disney lover. And this episode is no different. And today we are going to be talking about my favorite movie of all time. And that is Mary Poppins. So we are going to talk about backstory. We are going to talk through the entire film itself. Think of this as like a movie review episode of the podcast. And I'm looking forward to doing more of my favorite Disney movie reviews in the future. But I thought, why not start with the cream of the crop, the tip of the top? It's Mary Poppins. And there we stop. Let's jump right into it. Okay, so as we go into this, um, I've already mentioned this podcast before on the show, but I love the podcast Disorder Every Disney Film, and they have, it's, it's a film review podcast about originally the Disney animated films, but now they've gone into other Disney films that are basically every Disney films on the table now. And so they use a specific format with their reviews that they do. And so I'm going to be adopting a good amount of <laughs> their episode like order and stuff. So if you're a disorder listener and you're listening today and thinking this feels like pretty similar, it's because I'm drawing huge inspiration from the way that they do their show. So I'm going to just jump right in and I'm just so excited to do this. Okay, I got to stop building it up and just jump right in. Mary Poppins premiered on August 27th of 1964, and it was one of the biggest films of 1964. It is based on the books by P.L. Travers and directed by Robert Stevenson and, of course, starring none other than Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins, Dick Van Dyke as Bert, David Tomlinson as Mr. Banks, Glynis Johns as Mrs. Banks, Karen Dotrice or Dotrice, 
I apologize if I'm saying that wrong, as Jane Banks and then Matthew Garber as Michael Banks. For those of you who are big musical theater fans, a big, I guess you would call it a competition movie for Mary Poppins in 1964 was actually My Fair Lady. And so it was interesting to see how things went down at the Oscars with those two movies. But it's just very interesting the time that this movie was made. And this was toward the end, sadly, of of Walt Disney's career. Thankfully, he was still alive to see the magic of it all and was very involved with the production and the story and everything regarding Mary Poppins, the casting of Mary Poppins herself. There are just so many things that Walt Disney was involved with um, in this film specifically, which I think is part of the reason why it's just so legendary. And it really is one of Walt Disney's crowning achievements. And I'm so glad that this film exists, not just because I love it, but because there is a whole generation who grew up with this film and then passed it on to their kids. And then they passed it on, you know, to their kids. And and here we are now. Mary Poppins is still a beloved name and a beloved story in books and also with the films themselves. So now I am going to tell you about my memories of this film. So my very first memory, I got to say I was five years old, probably. And this sounds random, but my sister, Nikki, was getting some dental procedures done. And she was, you know, probably given laughing gas that day. And so anyway, she had the procedure done in the morning and then was totally conked out for the rest of the day at home. And she was in our living room laying out on the couch. And I remember coming in, she had fallen asleep, but there was a movie on for her. And that movie was Mary Poppins. And that's the first time that I remember ever seeing part of the movie. And it was during like the Jolly Holiday, supercalifragilistic scene. And so there was lots of color, lots of animation. And I was just like, huh, that's cool. And then I like turned and ran away and totally forgot about this movie pretty much. And then years later, my family had moved to a new state. I had grown up some. I was in double digits. I was like 10 or 11 at this point and had my own bedroom and which was a big deal because I didn't get my own room until I was a little bit older. And I was cleaning out my bedroom one day, just picking up and somehow, and I still have no idea how this got there. I am convinced that it was dropped by an angel or Mary Poppins herself. I found, not in a case, just a CD, and it was the soundtrack to Mary Poppins. And it was this beautiful CD. Some of you guys may have grown up with a CD. It was just a silver CD. And then it had this beautiful like fuchsia pink embossed with the Mary Poppins font and all the songs and the song credits. And anyway, it was just this beautiful CD. And I was just like, huh, I know this is a movie and I know I've, you know, I, I know what it is, but I've never really listened to this. So sure, let's turn it on. So I put it inside my CD player, turned it on and was instantly like, I can't explain it. I remember exactly where I was in that bedroom. And I was just completely transfixed as soon as the music started. And I say that that's where my love of Mary Poppins began was that day. The highlights of that soundtrack that day for me, um, 
the biggest one was listening to Jolly Holiday. That instantly turned into my favorite song from the movie. And was and I, I just got really Mary Poppins nerdy all of a sudden. And I, I was like, I know nothing about this movie, but I have to know everything about this movie. And I feel like from that day forward, it became my favorite movie of all time. And I just... I just remember listening to the overture and I was just blown away. And it was this weird experience of I knew I had heard all this music before, but it just resonated to me differently. It felt different and it almost felt like I was listening to it for the first time. I listened to that CD for days and days. I played it in my room and when I went places, I took my little Sony Walkman with me and played it with me there and I would have these performing arts classes and we had a, a dinner break and on my dinner break I just popped in my headphones and listened to the Mary Poppins CD. I literally was just having the time of my life feeling that I was completely transported into a different world and fast forwarding I would say probably five six years after that this was before like Spotify was big and Apple Music wasn't even a thing yet. I was always given at Christmas time and at my birthday uh, iTunes gift cards. And so I decided to start buying my favorite soundtracks digitally. And of course, one of the first ones I did was Mary Poppins. And one thing that was included on the digital download version of the Mary Poppins soundtrack that was not included on the CD that I had was this incredible interview with the Sherman Brothers. Now, if you don't know who the Sherman Brothers are, they are Richard and Robert Sherman. Robert passed away uh, several years ago, but Richard's still alive. They are the men who wrote the songs for Mary Poppins and many other beloved Disney songs. But I would say their their cream of the crop golden like experience was Mary Poppins. And in this interview, it's like 16 minutes long. And it's I go look it up as soon as you're done listening to this episode. Go look up the Mary Poppins soundtrack and look at listen to this interview because it's extraordinary. They just they sit down and they talk about the stories behind how they wrote some of the most um, legendary and and special songs of all time. I grew up loving um, any Disney bonus feature that I could get my hands on. And so this was just the next step into the nerdiness of, of loving Mary Poppins. And I remember listening to that interview, hearing the stories of, um, and I'll, I'll get into this a little bit more uh, in a few minutes, but the, the negotiations to get the film rights from the original author of the Mary Poppins book, P.L. Travers. And they talk about that a little bit in this interview. And I thought it was the most fascinating thing. And I was like, man, wouldn't that make the coolest movie someday? Like to hear this whole story being told about them creating Mary Poppins. And lo and behold, about five years after that point, uh, a movie called Saving Mr. Banks came out. And this movie is literally, like, literally that. When I was like, man, I wish I could hear the story of how this all came to be with the negotiations with P.L. Travers and Walt Disney. That's literally the movie that they made. It came out the day before my birthday in 2013. And it was the most magical birthday present I've ever received from Disney and from Hollywood. And... It really goes into some fun detail about the story of how Mary Poppins came to life. Now, I know that 
you can't say that this is exactly how it went. And I understand that. But the way that they wrote the story, it's definitely inspired by how these negotiations went. And I just I love that film so much. So that's another fun one to check out. And yeah, it's just wonderful. And the last thing that I wanted to talk about when talking about my memories of Mary Poppins is about a season that I was in about three years ago. And I affectionately refer to this season of life as the Poppins process. All of my Mary Poppins cast, shout out to you. I love you all so much. And basically, I I lived my dream for the summer of 2018. And I was Mary Poppins understudy in a production, a local production with my church, actually. And uh, they have their own performing arts team called Gateway Performing Arts. And I can literally say, like, in in the 26 years of life that I've lived, um, that season is probably in my top three, like, best seasons of my life. And so not only did I grow up loving this movie, but then getting to play these beloved characters um, was an experience. I'm like literally getting choked up right now thinking about it. It's an experience that I will never, ever forget. And those of you <laughs> listening who were part of that cast know what I'm talking about. And uh, so anyway, that's going to get its own podcast episode. I promise it is in the works. Um, so I don't want to delve into that too much, but those are definitely um, integral moments of my memories of Mary Poppins. So I had to just bring it up here. So going along with the structure of disorder, the next thing they like to talk about is overall thoughts and impressions of the film. And I don't know how else to say this, but Mary Poppins is my favorite movie of all time. Everything in it is incredible, and it's an absolute masterpiece, a crowning achievement, not just for Walt Disney himself, but for the studio, for every person who played a part in it. Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke, they all refer to Mary Poppins as uh, such an integral part of their careers, and I know that it's something that they're still obviously very recognized for, and it's, oh goodness, I'd have to do the math. If it's not 60 years old, it's close. And um, it's uh, it's just incredible. And I know that I'm like the most biased because it's my favorite movie ever. But that's the fun of having a podcast called Magic Through My Eyes. So I'm going to give you guys my perspective on this sweet film for the rest of our time together. And like I hinted at earlier with Saving Mr. Banks, what's for me um, almost more fascinating to, than the film itself is how the film came to be. So I wanted to go into a little bit of that before we delve into the review. If you don't know the whole story of the making of Mary Poppins, uh, it started with Walt Disney. He uh, was in his home one day and his daughters were in their room just giggling. And he came in and he asked them, what are you giggling about? And his daughters just looked at him and said, Mary Poppins. And right there, they showed their dad this book written by a woman named P.L. Travers. And Walt Disney was instantly captivated by this character of Mary Poppins and the story. So he knew right then and there that he wanted to make this film. And he promised his girls that he would. And so Walt, that these are bits and pieces, I don't want to go too far into it, but Walt gave 
the book to the Sherman Brothers, the songwriters, and he asked them to look through the book and see um, maybe like where they could get inspiration for a movie because there were multiple Mary Poppins books, not just one. And the Sherman Brothers went through the story goes that they went through and, and circled with like either a red like crayon or pencil. They circled the chapter titles that were uh, really intriguing to them of like, ooh, this could be good for the movie. This could be good. And so they went back to Walt Disney and they showed him their thoughts. He pulled they pulled out their book with all the different scenes uh, circled. And then Walt Disney just grinned. He pulled out his copy of Mary Poppins and showed them that he had circled the exact same scenes that they had. So this began a very, like, long journey. Well, even maybe before the Sherman brothers were involved, it was around 20 years that Walt Disney was going to P.L. Travers and asking for the rights to Mary Mary Poppins' uh to make the film. And P.L. Travers was very defiant. She was completely opposed and didn't want to do it. And that's kind of part of the fun of watching Saving Mr. Banks is it really brings that story to life. Um, but Walt Disney persisted and he finally convinced her after about 20 years um, to fly to Los Angeles and to meet with the story team of Mary Poppins uh, and collaborate to, to make the story. And so that began a very long process where there was lots of headbutting and things were just not working out. And P.L. Travers did not like what they were doing with the character at all. And part of what's so cool about Saving Mr. Banks is she had asked every time that they met in person that their meetings be recorded on tape. So that way she could have a record of everything that was said. I would assume for legal rights to be able to protect her character in any way. So it was from those recordings that they pulled the script uh, for Saving Mr. Banks. So um, anyway, I just, I have to digress on this. It's after years of discussions with P.L. Travers, she finally gave in. Walt Disney wore her down and she signed over the film rights to Walt Disney. So I want to go back to the very beginning of where this all began. And I, during this season a couple years ago of the Poppins process, for my birthday that year, a few of my friends actually got me copies of the original Mary Poppins book by P.L. Travers. So I thought it'd be so fun to read an excerpt of it and give just like the foundation of, of where this all came from. So shout out to Colton and Chloe and to Amy for giving me those books. They are treasures of mine. And so I'm just going to open it up here. Pages rustling. Here we go. All right. This is chapter one, East Wind. If you want to find Cherry Tree Lane, all you have to do is ask the policeman at the crossroads. He will push his helmet slightly to one side, scratch his head thoughtfully, and then he will point his huge, white-gloved finger and say, First to your right, second to your left, sharp right again, and you're there. Good morning. And sure enough, if you follow his directions exactly, you will be there, right in the middle of Cherry Tree Lane where the houses run down one side and the park runs down the other and the cherry trees go dancing right down the middle. If you're looking for number 17, and it is more likely that you will be, for this book is all about that particular house, 
you will very soon find it. To begin with, it is the smallest house in the lane, and besides that, it is the only one that is rather dilapidated and needs a coat of paint. But Mr. Banks, who owns it, said to Mrs. Banks that she could either have a nice, clean, comfortable house or four children. But not both, for he couldn't afford it. Also forgot to put this disclaimer earlier that at any given point through this episode, I'm just going to pop into a Cockney accent or a British accent. So just be ready and you're welcome. (laughs) So let's just jump right into the movie. And I'm going to get very emotional in different parts. So just bear with me because I love talking about this and I hope that you enjoy listening. So right here, we're going to start at the very beginning. There's the fanfare of Buena Vista Pictures. And then the screen goes black. And it fades up to this beautiful, um, it sounds like violins waiting in anticipation for the melody of the overture to begin. And it's basically a bunch of songs from the movie, and but they're all instrumental versions and they kind of give you a good taste of what's to come and then your backdrop is just the London sky and these are actually paintings uh, which is a really really incredible thing to think about and so those were not shot in like London or anything Uh, Mary Poppins was actually shot in Los Angeles on the Disney lot and so they wanted to have an authentic feel of London even though they weren't there and so an incredible man by the name of Peter Ellenshaw uh, did these incredible paintings and they shot those and, and that became the backdrop for the very beginning of the movie and there's just I the beginning of this movie and just the music itself it it's wonderfully anticipatory is that a word they do a really good job of building the anticipation of what's to come and then you get these beautiful camera shots into uh, Cherry Tree Lane uh, right before you get into Cherry Tree Lane this park and right there is a one man band by none other than Bert, played by Dick Van Dyke. And I just think this scene is delightful. And it's so fun to see him playing all these different instruments and all the people around you are introduced to some really um, sweet characters. You don't really see a lot of them throughout the film, just more ensemble type characters, but all the interactions are just so sweet. And, and Bert is just so charming. And here in this scene is the first time we hear um, him sing Chim Chim Cherie because in the overture there is a version of Chim Chim Cherie that an ensemble sings. Oh my gosh, I don't know how I forgot this. So toward the end of the overture, you see Mary Poppins in the clouds. And, but you don't see like full like detail of her, but then they zoom in and you see her right there. She's just floating on a cloud, powdering her nose and it's it's purely delightful. Okay, so I had to go there. Now we're back with Bert, charming as can be as a one-man band. And so here he sings a, a lyrically different version of Chim Chim Cherie than we know. Um, but he's just like uh, choosing different people in the audience uh, to sing about. And then all of a sudden he hears a whistling of the wind and the wind is changing. And... 
there's this um, beautiful moment that he sings, um, winds in the east, mist coming in, like something is brewing about to begin. And um, what else? Oh, yeah. I can't put my finger on what lies in store, but I feel what's to happen all happened before. And how he just like sets that up so well. Again, the anticipation waiting for the magic to come. It's uh, it's really artistic. It's really well done because now it feels like, oh, this is like, you know, the usual standard Broadway opening to a show. But back then they were like inventing this formula for movies. And so I, uh, I think it's uh, quite brilliant. So anyway, after that, he breaks the fourth wall and and communicates with the audience and he says hello everyone da 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 um and uh kind of like in the book how it introduces uh cherry tree lane in number 17 he goes and takes a walk and shows everyone where 17 cherry tree lane is before you get to 17 number 17 you see uh the admiral boom admiral boom and mr binnacle I think they are just such fun characters. They're, I'm pretty sure at that point they're, uh, they're on the roof and, and waiting for uh, the next hour. And as Bert says, um, England gets its time from Greenwich. Greenwich takes its time from Admiral Boom. And it's, I just think his character is really fun and quirky. And his little uh, henchman, Mr. Binnacle, is, is quite a character as well. So anyway, Bert keeps walking and we get into the house. There's commotion. There's craziness. And basically what's happening is the children are missing. The maid and cook are going crazy. And there's Katie Nana. And uh, she is about to leave because she can't handle the kids anymore. They've run away from her for the last time and she just can't take it. So the cook and the maid are trying to convince her to stay. And then all of a sudden, Mrs. Banks comes walking down the street and we hear her singing our first sneak peek of what I think is such a fun song in Mary Poppins, Sister Suffragette. And um, so then she comes in and Katie Nana's trying to leave and all this stuff. And so Mrs. Banks is blissfully unaware of what's happening. And she uh, is so passionate about women's rights and, and goes into this wonderful song called Sister Suffragette. And the story behind this one is Glynis Johns, who plays Mrs. Banks, um, when she was approached about doing the movie, um, she said she would do it if she was given a song and she because she was very interested in having her own song and so Walt Disney was like absolutely like we've got a great song for you the boys are writing it and da 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 and so then he goes back to the Sherman Brothers affectionately called the boys and he says we need to write a song for Glynis now and this is what they came up with um so does it really give a lot of like moving forward of the story no but I think it's it's a really fun way to uh, not kick off the movie because it kicks off with Chim Chim Cherie, but it's our first really big energetic song um, after the film's beginning. And so it's just so fun. And oh my goodness, to, to talk about a little bit about Mrs. Banks. She was my favorite character in this movie uh, for, for a season just because I thought she was so quirky and fun. And oh my gosh, her costume is 
incredible. Like the blue with the yellow uh, popping out on the collar and uh, her beautiful sashes, the sister suffragette. And uh, I, I just, I not only adore the costume design on her, but also for the entire movie. And to just take a quick little segue here, um, a man by the name of Tony Walton was the costume designer and set designer for Mary Poppins. He, at the time, was married to Julie Andrews. And so when Walt Disney met Julie Andrews, uh, talking to her about doing the film, he, uh, Walt Disney asked about Tony, what did he do for a living? And he said, I'm a set and costume designer. And he said, bring your portfolio. And then he got the job. So anyway, I believe that his costumes and sets are some of the highlights of this film, and especially with Mrs. Banks and and her whole costume. And I think it's just that scene is so funny because, again, she's just blissfully unaware of what's going on. And Katie Nan is just screaming at her, Mrs. Banks, you know, and she's singing, well done, well done, sister suffragette, you know, and just going off. And and uh, so Katie Nana, uh, the song ends and uh, Mrs. Banks is like, well, where are the children? And and Katie Nana goes, well, to be entirely precise, the children are not here. And <laughs> so then it goes into this whole big thing and, and Katie Nana leaves. And uh, of course, while all this is happening, the movie just moves so efficiently in this part. And uh, you hear Mr. Banks coming down the street and Mrs. Banks begs Katie Nana to not leave, but she will not. Uh, she will not listen to Mrs. Banks, and so she leaves, and she goes outside um, to to gather her things and, and get into the ride to, to carry her off away from the Banks' house. And Mr. Banks helps Katie Nana get into the vehicle, and uh, this line always cracks me up, and he's like, can I help you, Katie Nana? You know, whatever. And uh, then as he's closing the door, he just looks at her and he goes, what a very pretty hat, and then shuts the door. <laughs> I just think his character is another quirky one, which is uh, very sweet and very unique, in my opinion. Um, so after that, again, very efficiently moving forward, we move straight into Mr. Banks's basically his theme song, The Life I Lead. And it's him. It's basically his nighttime routine after coming home from work. He explains, um, at 6.01, I march through my door. And uh, just the whole the whole routine, consistent is the life I lead. And at this time, Mrs. Banks is trying to tell uh, her husband that the children are missing. Katie Nana's not here anymore, you know, and he's just like, yes, 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 you know, <laughs> not paying attention at all. Again, that blissful unawareness because he's like I'm in my routine I'm living my life doing the whole thing and so anyway he he goes through the whole thing talking about the kids and at the end he'll at the end of the night he's going to pat them on the head and send them off to bed how lonely is the life I lead and so anyway I'm going to continue singing these songs as we go through it just because I can't not but anyway he asks where are the children and Mrs. Banks says, well, they're not here. <laughs> and so he finally realizes, oh, my gosh, our children are missing and we have to find them. And so he immediately gets on the phone to talk with the police. And he's explaining to them over the phone that, yes, children are missing. We're on 17 Cherry Tree Lane. And then <laughs> there's a ring at the doorbell. And Mrs. Banks opens the door and she says, the police are here, George. And uh <laughs> He just, he, on the, he's still on the phone with the police, and he says, well, what wonderful services. 
again, he's just got these great little lines. And then the constable comes in, who is such a fun little featured character. I think, uh, again, I think I, I keep using the word quirky, but it's just a good way to describe a lot of the characters in this story. And I think that's how P.L. Travers wrote a lot of her stories with just some fun, unique quirky characters and so the Walt Disney version wanted to to reflect that and to honor the the style in which she wrote and include some of these quirky characters and the constable's another one so he says I believe I have some valuables of yours and (laughs) the children walk in and the reason that they left the house or they left Katie Nana was because they were flying a kite and they lost track of it and so they were chasing all around town uh, to to keep up with the kite, and so uh, after this, the children are basically disciplined by their father, and they're sent to their bedrooms, and then from there, Mr. Banks decides I'm going to hire the next nanny, um, because he tells Mrs. Banks uh, the the rest of them that have been hired are uh, completely unqualified disasters. I may be paraphrasing a little bit. And uh, so Mrs. Banks is explaining, when I chose Katie Nana, I chose her because she was, she seemed so firm and cross. And another favorite line of mine of Mr. Banks is, Winifred, never confuse efficiency with a liver complaint. (laughs) And I'm less like, what? (laughs) So anyway, he decides I'm going to find the next nanny myself. And so he goes into a reprise of The Life I Lead, uh, writing the advertisement for the paper. And then as that song ends, um, the children come back in and uh, Sweet Jane explains, we feel awful for what we've done today and we wanted to help. And so they wrote their own advertisement, which goes into the next song, The Perfect Nanny. And this song is so sweet, and it's basically a whole advertisement. And I know it's advertisement. That's how we say it in America. But it's just so much more fun to say advertisement. Uh, And this song is just so cute. And Karen Detrice, who plays Jane, uh, says that she cringes every time she listens to it just because she was so nervous and she didn't think she sounded very good. But I think it's such a darling little performance. And... um, I just think it's so sweet. And there's a line that she sings, the very last thing she says, um, many thanks sincerely. And then Jane and Michael both sing, Jane and Michael, thanks. That many thanks sincerely, she was actually a cameo character in Mary Poppins Returns. And that's one of the lines that she says as she's leaving uh, the other characters that she's speaking with. And so that blew my mind when that came up. But one of my favorite things about the song, The Perfect Nanny, is Michael's little add-ins where uh, he's just like, I put that in too, you know, and uh, that's the part I put in. Uh, it's it's very sweet. So anyway, Mr. Banks is like, this is ridiculous. Children, like, go, all the things. And so then he takes their advertisement and he rips it up in several pieces and he puts it in the fireplace. And then, of course... Something magical happens. You all know uh, these pieces of paper begin to float up through the chimney and we see them leave out of the chimney and out into the open air. Which takes us into the very next scene. 
And this is where, after the advertisement is released that Mr. Banks wrote, there are just nannies lined up down the street to come and interview uh, to be the children's nanny. And this turns into quite a very fun scene. And Mr. Banks is inside the house getting ready. And uh, he's being reminded that there are any nannies outside. And he said, I said in the advertisement, I will start interviews at eight o'clock. So that's when we're starting interviews. And so (laughs) they're looking at the clock and it's almost eight o'clock. And so (laughs) Mrs. Banks is talking about posts, everyone. And I didn't mention this earlier, but it happened earlier that because of Admiral Boom, he always shoots off a cannon at the beginning of every hour. And so... Um, or maybe it's specific hours in the day. But anyway, the cannon was going to go off at eight o'clock. And so Mr. Banks pulls out his pocket watch and he's counting down 10, nine. And then Mrs. Banks is counting down and all the people in the house, the cook and the maid and Mrs. Banks and everyone go to their different posts in the house to like hold the fine china or, you know, these porcelain statues or whatever it is, um, because the, the whole house is about to like have an earthquake basically because of Admiral Boom, which on a technical level, the way that they did this shot, like these shots in the scene specifically, kind of blows my mind because sometimes I have to remember like this movie was made in the 1960s when special effects in movies were still very much so a new thing. And so a lot of this, like obviously there were no computers. So a lot of these um, little gags and things you can call them, Um, had to be fabricated in real life. And so that's where technology like audio animatronics came into handy because at this point, Disneyland had already been established for several years. And so they were able to take technology straight from the parks that they were using and build it into their sets for this movie, which I thought was fascinating. And you really see that at work here with um, the clock striking eight and the whole house like shaking and picture frames being crooked and being put back into place and the piano just rolling across the room like uh, quite the spectacle especially for the time that it was made and so anyway he says see it's now eight o'clock and everything's just going crazy and then all of a sudden as they're dealing with the chaos of admiral boom basically giving them an earthquake we see outside something begin to change Um, The children are watching from their window and uh, they say, those aren't uh, the nannies that we advertised for at all. They don't have rosy cheeks. And and so anyway, these nannies um, are just waiting outside and the wind begins to pick up. You could say a wind from the east begins to pick up (laughs) and they all start flying away. And this is another stunt-wise spectacular scene. There are several women, I mean, at least 10, probably closer to 20 stunt women. And a lot of them are on wires because they're like flying in the air and then they're just tumbling through the streets. And then there's all these leaves blowing. And again, to be able to fabricate all of this so well in the 1960s, I feel like it's just such a marvel. And I love that uh, from a costume design standpoint, they're all just dressed in black. They're all drab. They, um, Their expressions on their faces are very just glum and gloomy. And then you see them all just begin to float away. And then um, all of a sudden you hear um, 
and I always get <laughs> I feel like it's either a mixture of like excitement and like being so emotional like I'm gonna cry um, or I'm just like so excited I can't stand it and all of a sudden you start to hear the melody of a song that will come later which is Mary Poppins theme spoonful of sugar and you just hear Jane go Michael look and she points oh gosh I shouldn't be crying right now <laughs> she's just coming in the scene but it's so cool and uh Mary Poppins comes on the scene. So with the east wind, she blows the rest of the nannies away, and, and she's the only one left. And so when the cook or the, the maid opens the door, um, because the maid had asked Mr. Banks, uh, shall I let them in? And, and he says, uh, one at a time. And so she opens the door and says, you may come in one at a time. And then Mary Poppins just immediately just thank you, walks in and basically has this, um, moment of basically owning Mr. Banks. And I think this is the perfect introduction for Mary Poppins because of that. Um, it, it, expresses her personality in such a great way um just because she's commanding the space she's commanding the room she knows exactly what she's doing and um so Mr. Banks is like oh hot shot you know over here and so uh this this whole scene um I have used as an audition piece before and it's it's one of my favorite audition pieces ever and uh, he asks to see her references, and she says, oh, I make it a point never to give references, a very old-fashioned idea to my mind. And uh, so anyway, she pulls out a piece of paper, and she says, now then, the qualifications. And she says, item one, rosy cheeks. And, or it may not be item one, but anyway. Oh, no, 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 no. So, Sorry. I'm getting all tongue-tied and stuff, talking about a cheery disposition. I am never cross. And Mr. Banks begins to notice that this is the advertisement that the children wrote. And he sees that, and you can see there's a shot of her holding the paper, and it's all the, the writ, ripped pieces put back together. And so she's trying to explain everything to him. And then he's just so perplexed. He's like, I tore it up. I put it in the fireplace, you know, this whole thing. And um, and she's just like, are you all right, sir? You know, basically. And of course, she knows exactly what's going on. I, in this scene, and now being a big Mary Poppins fan, I've seen this movie a lot. I have lots of different theories on things like, not conspiracy theories, but like theories of the film itself. And I like that Mary Poppins is in complete control during this whole story. And especially in the scene, she knows exactly what she's doing. And Mr. Banks has no idea what he's doing or what she's doing. And I find it marvelous and fascinating. And so he, <laughs> he's just so perplexed and looking at her and She's saying things like, I will require every second Tuesday off. And he's just going back to the fireplace. And and she says something to the effect of, I believe a, a trial period would be wise. And then they're both looking in the fireplace. And Mary Poppins just looks at him and says, hmm, I'll give you one week. I'll know by then. And I got a little bit ahead of myself here. But one thing that we have to keep in mind with this whole scene is that this is the moment the world was waiting for. 
but they didn't even know it. This was the very first time that Julie Andrews spoke in a film. She had only done Broadway up to this point. And so that was another big risk that the Walt Disney Company took was making the star of their movie an unknown movie star, an unknown movie actress, I mean. And um, but this this movie skyrocketed uh, Julie Andrews career. And so to just take that moment even before the scene begins to think about this is when everything changed. This is when family entertainment changed everything because of this woman. And I'm sure you well know she's one of my favorite actresses of all time and rightfully so because she is she is pretty incredible. So anyway, we're back to the end of the scene and she says, I'll give you one week. And then she says, I'll see the children now. Thank you. And the children see her. And then again, another great special effect, uh, which is a part of her character, is that she goes up the banister instead of like going down the stairs. Whereas, you know, you would slide up or you would slide down the banister, but never up. And I believe that's something from the Mary Poppins books um, that they they carried over. So anyway, um, she goes up the banister and the children are blown away. And I believe as an audience member, especially in 1964, I would have been blown away myself seeing, again, this innovative technology. They had to, there was so much use of different types of technology in this movie. And it, it just happened so quick. It's like, boom, nannies are flying through the streets. Boom, Admiral, boom, literally like things are crashing everywhere. And boom, Mary Poppins is flying up the banister. It's, it's quite incredible. So they, the, I'm, I'm getting tongue tied. I'm so excited. Mary Poppins goes up to her room. The children see, show her to her room. And she begins, this is basically her introduction of who she will be to the children. And so, of course, she's got uh, a few things with her. She's got her parrot head umbrella and then her magical carpet bag. And one thing about the parrot head umbrella, they they went back and forth um, in the initial planning and they thought that the umbrella was actually going to talk throughout the film. They decided to save it for the end of the movie, just as a fun little little thing for him. Um, but they decided to nix that. But I still think uh, the umbrella is a character in and of itself. Uh, beautifully crafted uh, and just a very, very unique thing. And when you think of a parrot head umbrella, you can't think of anything else but Mary Poppins herself. And um, there's this great, documentary on Disney Plus called Prop Culture. And the very first episode is all about the props of Mary Poppins. And they talk specifically about the parrot head umbrella and the design of it. And it's so that's a really fun thing to watch if you haven't before. Uh, I highly recommend that. And anyway, so she starts to open up her carpet bag and starts to pull out some fun stuff. And uh, in the Broadway musical, which I haven't really mentioned much here besides talking about my season in the Poppins process, there is a whole song um, devoted to this scene, basically her introduction to the children where she's pulling things out of the carpet bag. Um, but I also really love just the dialogue in the movie because Julie Andrews is so compelling um, as an actress. You, 
um, believe her from the very start. Like when I see Julie Andrews playing Mary Poppins, I don't see Julie Andrews. I just see Mary Poppins, which I think is one of the greatest compliments I could give an actor or an actress. Um, so she starts pulling fun things out of her bag. She's, And you start to see a little bit of her personality as she pulls things out. Like she pulls out this plant, you know, so she likes things um, that are, you know, springing to life. Um, and then she says, a little more light, perhaps. And then she pulls out this huge lamp out of her carpet bag. And to again, the technology that was used to do this was incredible and I can't remember where. It's got to be on the bonus features of one of the DVDs, like the DVD version of Mary Poppins. But they have, instead of a green screen, they had like an orange screen. And so what they did was they had someone under the table feeding her the the different items. And then they were able to remove all those people and all those things uh, for the, the actual film itself. So it's it's quite fascinating. Um, to see that. And what's so fun is seeing the kids' reactions to everything she pulls out of the bag. Um, but then another thing that you see her pull out, because she sees a mirror on the wall, and she goes, oh, this will never do. And <laughs> we have to talk a second about sweet dear Mary Poppins. She's a little vain. Like, she loves herself. And I'm kind of about it. It's a it's a fun thing to add to her character. She's not self-absorbed, but she's like, she definitely takes pride in who she is and flaunts it. And so she has this little mirror and she says, this will never do. And then pulls out this huge mirror, hangs it on the wall. And she says something to the effect of, I always prefer to see my entire face um, at all times in the mirror. Uh, and then she pulls out this sweet pair of beautiful heels it's they're these pretty lilac-y purple color but they're just very fun and kind of flirty and I think that shows us a lot about her personality and then you see her take off her jacket now her coat is I believe it's like a charcoal color or navy-ish it's one of those two it's a dark color but then on the inside it's lined with this beautiful like reddish orange silk and um, Julie Andrews um, actually says that um, that costume designed by Tony Walton who was her husband at the time uh, she said that that was such a huge inspiration for her um, for Mary Poppins as a character because it showed kind of like she's kind of conservative and um, what's the word like just more serious on the outside but then when you get to know her and see her personality you see that she's a very colorful person very spunky and so um, she is always highly complimentary of the design specifically of that jacket because it gave her such inspiration for her character so you see her take that off and you begin to see more and more her little uh magic and personality come out and of course the magic of things coming out of the carpet bag and even her costume uh outside of the jacket also I love the hat can we talk about the hat that beautiful like black straw I think it is and then um the cherries and the daisies it's it's iconic and it's a wonderful design again shout out to Tony Walton on that one and uh then she has this white button down top, but then it's just got like this tiny little pop of red with this bow tie. And then she puts her apron on and um, 
she is looking for one more thing in her carpet bag. And it's so funny because she starts digging so deep and she stamps her foot on the ground because she can't find it. And then she like digs her head into the carpet bag. Um, She's looking for her tape measure and the children are asking why. And she said, so I can see how you two measure up. And so she pulls it out and um, measures Michael first. And she pulls it out, measures him. And she said, just as I thought, extremely stubborn and suspicious. And he says, I am not. And Jane starts to giggle. And you see the shot of the tape measure. And it says extremely stubborn and suspicious. And then Jane is giggling. And and then Mary Poppins says something to the effect of, all right, now you too. And as soon as she brings the tape measure up, Jane just stops laughing all of a sudden. It's a, it's a really sweet character moment. And I think a very well portrayed moment by sweet Karen Dutrice and then Mary Poppins reads hers and it says "Mm, rather inclined to giggle and doesn't put things away and then they ask her well how about you Mary Poppins how do you measure up and this is the moment this is the moment she takes the tape measure and she says you know all right if you insist And again, because she loves herself, she measures herself. And that's actually the first close-up shot that we get of the classic Mary Poppins, um, like, feet, where she has just, like, her feet turned out. And so we see that shot for the first time. And then we see the tape measure go up. And then she looks at it, smiles, and says, As I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. And... Like I said, in the Broadway musical, that's actually where the song starts because the song is called Practically Perfect. And so anyway, that whole scene is great in the Broadway musical. And it it's a little bit shorter and more succinct here. And uh, this is actually the first time that we hear her say her name. And Jane says, Mary Poppins, uh, that name is lovely. And, and Mary Poppins just says, thank you. I always liked it. Um, which again, she's... She definitely likes herself, but she's she's kind. Um, she is kind, but extremely firm. So anyway, from there, she may have had her apron on at this point. If not, she puts her apron on and then they decide to play a game. And she says, uh, what does she call the game? Well, begun is half done, something like that. And uh, she says, in other words, let's tidy up the nursery. And so from here is the first time, again, like we talked about with uh, that scene with Mr. Banks, this is the first time we hear Julie Andrews sing. Um, Again, I'm going to try to not cry, but I don't know why I get so emotional with this sometimes. It's just, you know, when you find your movie or your story that you just love, this one's mine. And uh, the kids are not excited about cleaning up the nursery. and, And Jane asks, it is a game, right, basically? And she says, well, that all depends on your point of view. You see, in every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap, the job's a game. And then this is where her basically Mary Poppins theme begins. And I think that's something that was really intentional by the Sherman brothers was to basically create these grounding melodies for our principal characters. So for the kids, it's the perfect nanny. For Mr. Banks, it's the life I lead. For Bert, it's Chim Chim Cheree. For Mrs. Banks, it's Sister Suffragette. And for Mary Poppins, it is 
Spoonful of Sugar. Now, what's so interesting is that this song was originally not going to be uh, Mary Poppins' song at all. The Sherman Brothers, in that interview I was telling you about um, at the end of the soundtrack, they talk about this song that they wrote for her initially called Through the Eyes of Love. It's this beautiful ballad. Uh, They loved the song, but when Julie Andrews came in uh, to go over the part because she was offered the part from Walt Disney and uh, basically she came in and uh, she said, I just, I don't think that's Mary Poppins song. And she explained like she needs something a little more um, bouncy and perky, you know, like the type of tender love ballad just doesn't quite make sense for the character. The Sherman brothers were devastated to hear this. Um, But basically, Walt Disney was like, we need to write another song for her. Um, That makes more sense for the character. And so they came up with this idea because the older brother, Robert, had children in school at the time. And they wanted to come up with this like kind of like motto or catchphrase for her. Um, something like practice makes perfect, stitch in time saves nine, you know, that type of thing. And uh, so anyway, Robert's son came home from school one day and, and he asked his son, how was school? And uh, he said, oh, we had to get a vaccine today. And his dad said, oh, did it hurt? And he said, oh, no, no, no. They just put the medicine in the middle of a sugar cube and then we just uh, we ate it and it was super easy. So Robert went back to Richard and said, how about this? A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And Richard thought it was like such a silly idea. He's like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And then all of a sudden it was like lightning in a bottle and it just happened and the song just came together. So they tell that story in that interview, but I had to tell a little bit of it because it's just too much fun. So anyway, Spoonful of Sugar begins. And basically the song is all about being optimistic and like being creative while getting your things done. And that's so straight in the DNA of who Mary Poppins is as a character and it really helps introduce that she really is fun like she has a very simple way of um, making sure that things get done but also making sure that the kids have a lot of fun while they do it and so the snap is introduced um, which everything starts to come to life in the bedroom and um They start like cleaning up the room and stuff. And I literally just had this thought. I wonder if and I can't prove this or anything, but I wonder if like the filmmakers for Beauty and the Beast maybe drew some inspiration from Spoonful of Sugar just because it's basically like enchanted objects coming to life. You know, the beds begin to make themselves. Um, There's some stop motion with some great wooden toys and these uh, letter blocks that spell out Mary Poppins and, you know, all, all of those great things. So I wonder, I wonder if maybe they, they uh, went back to that for some inspiration. But this song is as iconic as it gets. It's so fun. And even the melody of just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The idea of singing the word down, but making the melody go up is such a good idea. Like, it's one of those really nerdy things that you won't notice unless you, like, 
notice it. But that was something that the Sherman brothers were like, you know, Mary Poppins does the unexpected. And so even though she's talking about helping the medicine go down, the melody will go up. And it's just, oh, so much credit goes to them and the way that they wrote these songs. Also, I hope my pitch is okay. when how I sing these songs because I just I didn't know if I was going to be singing today or not but I just I can't I can't not so hopefully it sounds okay um and another really fun technological thing that's in this scene is the birds that are in the scene Mary Poppins sticks her head out the window which is an iconic shot in the movie and there are these robins uh feathering their nests with very little time to rest and one of the birds flies in and sets on her finger and this is an audio animatronic of course and one thing that they had to do to hide that these were you know not like real birds um, because there were so many wires attached to them you know in an attraction you can build walls to hide these wires but what they had to do was take all of the wires that were attached to this bird that was on her finger and they had to run them all up her arm and like hide them in her costume and so uh just the the effort that they went through to uh basically give a very seamless feeling performance of this bird singing with mary poppins it it took so much more behind the scenes it looks so effortless in the movie um but it it took a lot of work and something that's actually really fun about the bird singing in that scene julie andrews is an excellent whistler apparently and so she whistled all of that herself and so she was basically singing with herself in that scene which i think is awesome and she just created this melody uh for the bird that and it like harmonized with what she was singing with the chorus of the song. So there's all this different fun stuff that's happening in the room. And then toward the end of the song, she goes back to her room, tidying things up and she goes to the mirror and uh, literally sings with herself uh, outside of the Robin, the bird. She's literally singing with herself. And I don't know exactly how they shot this, but how they were able to see her like like her shot so how the shot works is it the camera is behind her head and you see kind of a profile of her face and then you see her face dead on in the mirror and so um she sings and hence and hence they find they find and just like the echo back and forth and then she's harmonizing with herself and then the mary poppins in the mirror just like goes off and does this incredible little vocalization and she goes this scale basically up and she ends up singing this very high note which I always found very impressive as a kid when I was listening to the soundtrack I was like how did she do that and so uh that's one thing I was I felt so accomplished like uh, I felt like I had made it as a vocalist when I could finally sing that like the way that she could (laughs) I mean I can't sing it as well as she can I mean it's it's Mary Poppins but anyway when I hit that note that day whenever I mean I was a teenager probably I was just so stoked out of my mind and going back to the scene itself when the Mary Poppins in the mirror is singing this whole thing uh Mary Poppins is putting her coat on and uh, she's like very not amused and she just looks at herself again in the mirror and just goes cheeky which is such a fun little Mary Poppins line and then the Mary in the mirror uh, just gives a wink at the camera and so 
then the kids are trying to figure out how to do this whole snapping thing. Jane figured it out, but Michael did not. And so right at the end of the song, Michael finally figures it out. And there's just chaos in the bedroom. There's wagons being rolled in. Michael's getting trapped in the closet. Um, The toys are going nuts. And then finally, Mary Poppins brings everything to a close. And the room is finally clean. And Mary Poppins says, you know, something to the effect of we're going to go out. And and Michael said, I want to tidy up the nursery again, (laughs) which I would want to as well. I wish I could tidy up my bedroom by just snapping my finger and everything coming together itself. I wonder if there's there's a technology to make that happen. So anyway, (laughs) so the next scene, we're going to hop forward a little bit. Um to Bert as a pavement artist. And this is something that we see introduced here because we've only seen Bert at the very beginning as a one-man band. Now he comes back here as a pavement artist. Walt Disney had the idea of Bert coming in and out of the story and being a jack-of-all-trades. And so every time he has a different occupation, he still has the same song, just different lyrics. Um, so this one is, Today I'm a screever, and as you can see, a screever's an artist of highest degree. It's all me own work from me old memory. And so he's got these beautiful chalk pavement pictures. And Mary Poppins and the kiddos show up, and Mary Poppins and Bert are old friends. We have no idea what their backstory is, but I would love to hear it someday. And uh, this is such an iconic shot um, where Mary Poppins, you don't see her, you just see her shadow and the silhouette. And it's framed perfectly in this little chalk pavement picture of a picture frame, basically. And Bert draws out the, the silhouette and he says, I know that silhouette anywhere, Mary Poppins. Also, we have to talk about um, Dick Van Dyke's accent. Um, it has been deemed one of the worst <laughs> British accents of all time in film. I actually was watching this like Q&A, like quick shot interview thing with a bunch of different British actors on YouTube one time. And uh, they uh, asked the question, worst British, a- worst British accent you've ever heard. And I think almost all of them said Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. (laughs) But I I think it's so endearing. Like, I know it's not the most accurate British Cockney accent of all time, but it's probably, if not the first one I heard, one of the very first ones I heard. And so I think it's really special and sweet. So anyway, they come in, they greet each other. And then Bert is telling the kids, you know, about Mary Poppins and she can take you to places you never dreamed of. And so then he has all these chalk pavement pictures with different locations. And so he does he goes into this little like pantomime slapstick comedy scene showing the kids, um, you know, like punting on the Thames and uh, going to the circus and walking the type tightrope and all these things. And, and then Jane points out, oh, I have to go back to that. So in that scene where um, he's pretending to be a tightrope walker, there's this shot of Michael and he just it's my favorite shot of him in the movie. He just has this little grin on his face that turns into a big smile because he's just so enchanted by Bert and the silly things that he's doing. And uh, 
that's exactly how I feel when I watch Dick Van Dyke. I'm just like, same, Michael, same. I'm so intrigued and fascinated by it. So anyway, he finishes and then Mary Poppins is kind of fed up that he's placing ideas into these kids' heads that she can take them places and do these magical things because she wanted to introduce her magic to them when she wanted to, not when Bert wanted to. <laughs> and so she's like not amused. And there's this funny bit where she's just like doing the slow clap. And uh, it's so funny. And she's so sassy. And so then Jane points out this chalk pavement picture of this beautiful park. And she says, I would love to go there. And uh, Bert said, you know, that sounds like a lot of fun. And then he just looks at Mary Poppins and says, nobody's watching. And as, like the kids start to ask her, please, Mary Poppins, can we go? And she says, like, I I do not choose to make a spectacle of myself. Thank you. And uh, Bert says, all right, I'll do it myself. <laughs> and so then he comes up with this ridiculous little thing to like, you know, he says, you think, you wink, then you double blink, you close your eyes and jump. And then, of course, nothing happens. And so I have this theory that Mary Poppins and Bert go way, way back. Now, P.L. Travers, one of her requirements for the film was that there would be no romance between Mary Poppins and Bert. She said that is out of the out of the picture, like no way. And um, but I still think they figured out a way to sneak it in there without being obvious. And um, Bert is, I believe, head over heels in love with Mary Poppins. And then Mary Poppins, like her stance is that Bert like makes her heart melt. She denies it and he knows it. Like he knows that he has this ability to make her heart melt and she denies it and he like takes full advantage of it. And so anyway, he kind of eggs her on in this part where he's like, I'll just do my own little magical thing and, you know, take us to this park. Of course, him knowing that it wouldn't work and that she would come back and say, Bert, what utter nonsense. And then she says, why do you always complicate things that are really quite simple? And so my theory is that Mary Poppins is not like... It's almost like she and Bert are having their own version of the conversation and they keep it to a point where it's like, no, it's not romantic, but she like will totally do anything that Bert wants because he makes her heart melt and she denies it and he knows it. <laughs> so anyway, they jump into this chalk pavement picture and then here comes probably the most iconic scene in the entire movie. And I would say, I would argue one of the most iconic scenes in cinema ever. In this beautiful hybrid animation and live action world that they created. And this was so groundbreaking. Uh, Walt Disney had done this years and years prior with um, a series of short films that he did called The Alice Comedies back at the beginning of his career, even before Mickey Mouse was born. Uh, but to see it on such a large scale of these animated backgrounds um, and characters and then these uh, live action characters in the scene as well. Um, so they are brushing themselves off. They have these beautiful new costumes on. And I, again, would argue that these are Mary Poppins and Bert's most iconic costumes in the film. And these are the, the costumes that you will see Mary Poppins and Bert wearing at the parks, at the Disney parks. 
and uh, they're brushing themselves off. And it looks like they're brushing off some kind of dust. But what it is, is it's chalk, which I think is just such a cool creative move. It's like, oh my gosh, they're actually in this chalk pavement picture. It's oh, it's, it's so cool. I love these little details where they just, they, they held nothing back with this. They didn't uh, skimp out on any details and they really went all in with the story. And they knew that they had to because they, they fought so hard to, to get the rights to this story. Um, this, and this not only was an important story that Walt Disney wanted to make, um, this was a promise he made to his girls. And so to just see the painstaking detail that they went through uh, to make this uh, come to life the way it did is fascinating. So to do the backgrounds, they did that uh, like orangish screen again. Uh, now, it's, it's a green screen. And uh, Bert just looks at Mary Poppins and just says, Mary Poppins, you look beautiful. And then this shot right here, when she says, do you really think so, is actually the very first shot she ever filmed for a movie ever. The first for Mary Poppins and the first for any film she had ever done, because this was actually her very first film ever, um, which is so cool. I think I mentioned that a little bit earlier. But anyway, so that was her very first line that she ever said in cinema and I mean, what a way to start your job with on this like new movie with that most gorgeous costume. Uh, again, Tony Walton. Holy cow. Like how? How did how was that idea in this man's brain? That beautiful white lace, the red little small details, the beautiful corseted bodice, um, just layers and layers of uh, what's the word? Like a little under layer. I'm thinking of petticoat that's the word there's layers of white and red and white and red and white and red and then those gorgeous white boots the victorian style with the buttons coming up the side it's it's so elegant and so beautiful and then of course uh bert with his uh the the white oxfords and the white pants and the pinstripe the red and orange pinstripe uh jacket the most iconic and oh and the bow tie as well the straw hat and then mary poppins hat too with that beautiful tool overlay where it creates like this sash that goes uh under her neck and it's oh my gosh it's just so stunning um and the red corset on it it's anytime i can get my hands on this costume like it is incredible uh this is like beautiful and amazing and I could go on and on about it oh and then she has a parasol as well because she's got the umbrella the black umbrella with the green parrot head in this scene she has this beautiful off-white and I think it's pink parasol um with a parrot head and it's white um or that pretty porcelain color and uh, a few years ago as a Christmas gift my parents got me it was that same year of Mary Poppins the Poppins process that was the year of Mary Poppins gifts um they gave me a Jolly Holiday costume, and uh, my mom had a parasol custom made for me, and uh, even uh, the parrot head was, like, sculpted by hand uh, for me. So it was, it's one of the most beautiful gifts I've ever received, and uh, it's, it's just beautiful. So anyway, I could go on and on about that costume. And Jane and Michael, their costumes are so sweet, too. It's basically like the 
child version of the Mary Poppins and Burt costumes with different colors. So like Michael has a pinstripe jacket, but it's this light blue color. And then Jane has this beautiful off-white lacy dress as well, but she's got an orange lining on it instead of red. Um, so the children go off to play. And again, another really sweet detail in this. I love how Mary Poppins just says, don't fall and smosh the drawing. Uh, because I sometimes forget the world looks so tangible and real. I have to remember, they're dancing in a picture. Like, oh my gosh. Oh, it's so magical. I can bar like barely handle it. So then from there begins uh, one of the best songs in the movie, Jolly Holiday. And this is the first time in the movie where we really get to see some in-depth choreography and we can't talk about Mary Poppins without talking about Mark Burrow and Dee Dee Wood uh, who were the choreographers for this movie. They had done different movies before almost as like assistant choreographers but they were never the primary choreographers so this was really a breakout movie for a lot of people in their Hollywood careers including these two so they were the like head choreographers for this film. They were married at the time, which I thought was uh, so precious. Um, and so they got to do this together. And uh, they created that incredible movement, uh, that dance move where it's like the scoop of the leg that goes with the music of Jolly Holiday. Um, and it's just an iconic moment of choreography in and of itself and I love how Bert just sings to Mary Poppins and this is the part where he just is like gushing all over her and all about her he is a big fan and he wants everyone in this chalk pavement world to know it and so this is the closest like you know if we have you know romantic duets in Disney movies I think of a whole new world from the little mermaid I'm, not, I'm so sorry Aladdin, not The Little Mermaid, or like I See the Light from Tangled. This is the closest that we get to that in this movie. Obviously, it's not a love song, but they're basically like, I like you, and I like, like you, like you, but I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> and I love it. So they're just so classy about it, and it's awesome. And then we get introduced to this magical world, because at this point, all that we've seen is the like chalk pavement backgrounds but now they go to like this barn and uh there are all these farm animals and they're singing and they're all animated and they're all just in this classic disney animated style and i think it's it's just gorgeous and uh they they have such a charming look to them and if you look at movies that the disney animated movies that came out around the same time as um Mary Poppins, you'll see some similarities in like the style of animation. Because um, this movie came out in 64. So The Sword and the Stone came out in the 60s. Uh, what else? 101 Dalmatians and The Jungle Book. And so even just those three films, you, you see a little bit of like the the style of where Disney animation was at the time. And this, uh, this scene is very consistent with that, which I think is really cool. It gives the animators their own mark on this movie, even though this is a live action film. It really combined all the things that Walt Disney loved. Live action entertainment, animation, the technology from the parks, music by his you know, his top songwriters, the Sherman brothers. And uh, so this, you really see a culmination of all of those things coming together in this scene specifically. Um, 
And so you see these barn animals, they're singing. And then at one point, the the cane, uh, Bert's cane and Mary's uh, parasol or Mary Poppins uh, parasol, I should say. That's a that's a line from Saving Mr. Banks. They they were talking about their beloved Mary and P.L. Travers goes, Poppins, never, ever just marry. So Mary Poppins parasol and they're all dancing together, which is so sweet. Um, and then there's that scene where they're walking down uh, this beautiful meadow and Bert picks up this bouquet and it's animated and then he hands it to Mary Poppins and when she takes it in her hand, the bouquet explodes into this beautiful um, like cloud of butterflies and that's been used in uh, that shot has been used to in in like promote and it's used in so much Disney marketing throughout the years. And uh, I mean, why not? It's classic. And I love that there are so many different angles of those shots. Like when Bert pulls out the the bouquet, it's kind of like a profile shot of him. And then it's on Mary and then or Mary Poppins, I should say. And then when the bird's or not birds, the butterflies begin to fly away. The shot moves behind them, and then you see kind of them moving forward, and it's just so magical. So then Mary Poppins gets to go into her own little verse of this song after they cross this river, and um, when they cross the river, there are these sweet little turtles who help them get across, and Mary Poppins is balancing perfectly, and then Bert's all like klutzy and trying to stay balanced, and the way that they were able to gets the the animation so close and detailed where it literally looks like they're bearing the weight of these people and their live action shoes are like right on top of the shell it doesn't look like the shoes are like floating on these um, animated characters the characters were just animated with an incredible amount of depth and realness like they uh look incredible and they blend really well with the live action actors in the scene and so anyway going back to Mary Poppins gets to sing her own little version of Jolly Holiday to Bert that he's saying it's a jolly holiday with Mary and uh, then she says oh it's a jolly holiday with you Bert and it's uh, so sweet and again she's like I'm totally flirting with you but like I'm not gonna say it um <laughs> And I love it. So then after that sweet shot uh, or that sweet scene, there's this great shot of them on the bridge and these um, animated swans coming through. Uh, it's it's just stunning. And it's it's animated like if it was real. You know what I mean? Like they're like, oh, we should choreograph that these swans come in. And it, it, it looks so the way that obviously they're animated characters, but the way that they move through the water, it looks very realistic. And I just think it's a nice little touch, just something charming to add to this already charming chalk pavement world. And then Mary Poppins and Bert sit down and Bert calls for waiter, waiter, and the penguins come in. <laughs> Now, this, of course, is a highlight and another iconic moment of the film. These penguins were animated. The supervising animator for them was Frank Thomas, who is a legend, an actual Disney legend, but just an, a legend in the Disney world. Um, he was part of this group um, at the Walt Disney Animation Studios um, called Disney's Nine Old Men. And so those are basically his nine closest confidants when it came to the animated world I like to and 
again, I'm not trying to compare Walt Disney to Jesus, but I think of like Jesus had his disciples, Walt Disney had the nine old men. And uh, so these were basically Walt Disney's protégés and some of the best of the best animators. And Frank Thomas did an incredible job on these characters, even though they look the same because they're all the same color, um, obviously because they're black and white, they're penguins. Um, They each have their own little like quirks and personalities and that was even another thing like such a great idea because originally it was going to be just four men as waiters singing to Mary Poppins and Bert in the scene but then Walt Disney was like you know what reminds me of waiters penguins because they're black and white and they you know they look like they're dressed in tuxedos and so it's just so funny how And uh, people have said this before, that Walt Disney would always just come in at just the right time when they weren't sure what to do with a character or with a specific part of the story. He would just be like, oh, what if you did this? And I feel like that moment of what if they were penguins was a moment like that. So anyway, they have this little theme song. It's played on a kazoo and it's adorable. And it was actually played by uh, Richard Sherman. And then they set the table for them. They bring out flowers. They throw the flowers in the air. Then they catch them and put them back in the vase. And they're wiping down the table and they're wiping down the plates and giving them their... uh, their menus and it's just the sweetest thing and I love it uh this scene always reminds me of uh, a birthday party that I had I actually when I turned 17 I had a Mary Poppins themed birthday party and so we had my mom had made these like real life versions of the menus um in this scene so it's like that pop of the bright red and the fuchsia pink with the swan outline on them and they're beautiful. Um, and so I always think of that when I think of this scene, because I think of like holding that actual menu and it just blew my mind. I was like, oh, my gosh, like my mom made this in real life. She fabricated a real prop that was a drawing once. And I always thought that was so fascinating. So shout out, mom. You're like the ultimate crafter. And thanks for making my Mary Poppins birthday party dreams come true. <laughs> so back to the scene itself. We are here in this cute little tea parlor basically and this is where all the magic happens like I said with the penguins they come out with the whole little kazoo theme song and then Mary Poppins and Bert order off the menus Mary Poppins says we'll start with raspberry ice and then some cakes and tea so the penguins are so stinking cute and I love them so much and then from there because they're like Order what you will. There will be no bill. It's complimentary. They they are infatuated with Mary Poppins. And I have a theory on this that everyone in this world is such a big fan of Mary Poppins because she created the world. And so since she is slightly vain, which I don't judge her for because she's practically perfect, I think that may be one of the reasons why It's almost like they're wired to love her. And I see that, especially with the penguins. They're such a big fan of hers. So anyway, Bert, but that's the thing. Bert was not programmed or like, you know, he was not part of that world. He came into that world. And so he just he just loves her. So anyway, they go into this cute little moment of Bert listing off all of these women's names and Mary Poppins starts to get a little jealous and the penguins join in and then they end it by saying 
the cream of the crop, tip of the top. It's Mary Poppins, and there we stop. And then this comes to my favorite shot in the entire movie. It's just a shot right of Mary Poppins. She's like blushing and she's, I don't know if you'd say embarrassed, but just very flattered by what was just said about her. And then she just kind of tilts her head to the side and she looks down. That's my favorite shot of her in the whole movie because it's such a genuine expression because most of the time she's like very, you know, prim and proper and spit spot, you know. But in this moment, it's like her guard completely came down. And so that's so fun to watch. So then from there, we go into this cute dance number. Uh, Bert grabs a salt shaker, which I thought was very interesting, and just starts dancing. He basically starts tap dancing. And he can, you because of the salt that was on the ground, you can hear super well um, his shuffling of his feet. Um, and then the penguins start to join in. So here's another shout out to Frank Thomas, who animated these incredible, incredible penguins, these four guys. Um, Number one, the idea of syncing sound and movement, like how a person would dance to a song, and replicating that with drawings is fascinating to me. And Frank Thomas does it so effortlessly here with the penguins. And it's just a joy to watch, like such a joy. And um, one of the really fun things in this scene is um, you'll see, I believe it's the penguin to his right. When Bert, he turns around at one moment and he like has to do these like swoop kick things where he like bends his knee up and then brings it back down kind of like in a swooping motion. And um when Frank Thomas had originally done the art for this um, and then they were syncing it up with the footage with Dick Van Dyke, uh, the footage of Dick Van Dyke, it looked like his foot was like going through one of the penguins heads. And so Frank Thomas reanimated this one penguin and every time Bert would kick up, the little penguin would duck. And so it's just this amount of impeccable, incredible detail um, that makes Disney movies so special. And, you know, it's talked about this with Disney parks, but there's such an uh, an importance and a care with um, those little, little details. And you see that so vividly in the scene, especially with a little example like that cute little penguin. So this number is just like the cutest thing. I want to learn every beat of it so that way I can dance it myself one of these days. And just the the stamina and the energy that Dick Van Dyke has. And we'll go into this more when we get to another very wonderful dance number in a little while. Um, But Dick Van Dyke did not have any formal dance training. And so the fact that he is so agile and like he he's pretty tall and long and lanky and um, being a dancer myself, um, knowing friends who are, you know, tall and, uh, you know, have long legs, kind of that lanky style. It can be very hard just because they're so high up to like feel grounded in their movement. They have to be super intentional about that. And uh, Dick Van Dyke does that so effortlessly. And uh, so do my tall friends. Shout out to all my tall uh, GPA dancer friends. I'm thinking about you right now. Um, But 
just seeing the way that he moves in the scene and oh my gosh the moment where he like pulls down his pants to waddle like the penguins so hilarious um I can't imagine all of the laughter that scene got uh, or that moment got in the theater in the 1960s. It just sounds like amazing. So then they go into one more final. When Mary old your hand, you feel so grand. Your heart starts beating like a big brass band. It's so cute. And then they're just like all going off. And then they do a curtain call. Mary Poppins is applauding. And then all of the penguins come out and, you know, do their little bows and And then they all hop up. Again, this is incredible animation. They hop onto Bert's cane, all four of them, and he pushes, he takes his hand, like the backside of his hand, and he pushes them onto the table so that way they can all have like a personal bow next to Mary Poppins. And the way that, again, the animation is so detailed, it look, it genuinely, the way that it's animated, it looks like Bert himself is pushing the penguins onto the table which is exactly the look that they were going for but the fact that that was a drawing how they created that blows my mind so anyway they have their little bows and things and then there's one penguin who is super infatuated with her and he gives mary poppins a kiss and then uh Bert gets his cane and does the classic trope of you know grabbing someone by the neck with a cane getting off stage kind of thing so cute and then from there Mary Poppins and Bert you start to hear this um, carousel music it's like a carousel rendition of Jolly Holiday and Mary Poppins and Bert begin to dance she opens her parasol and then it fades into the scene with this beautiful carousel a four-horse carousel and it's Mary Poppins Bert Jane and Michael I don't know how they all met back up it's one of the mysteries of the film <laughs> um, So anyway, they're on this beautiful carousel, which is live action. And um, then all of a sudden, the kids are talking and then Bert's like, oh, yeah, this is like a great time if you don't want to go anywhere. And then Mary Poppins says, who says we're not going anywhere? And then she says, oh, God. And this guy who's in the carousel has like this window shade and pulls it up. And it's an animated character. And what's such a cool detail about the scene is as the carousel horses are going by from the perspective or the audience perspective looking at the animated character, the shadows that are on the wall of like Mary Poppins and Bert and the kids are animated. So it's so cool to see how they effortlessly flip back and forth between this live action and this animated fantasy world. And it all comes together in this very fantastical way. And so anyway, they do this special effects and the magic of Mary Poppins comes to life and the the animated guard pulls this lever and then all of the carousel horses begin to fly independently outside of the carousel. And the way that they were able to to do this, oh my gosh, like it looks again so effortless and to think like I think these special effects overall still hold up very, very well. And this movie is almost 60 years old. Maybe I'm not doing my math right. It came out in 64. And it's almost 2022. So yeah, almost 60 years old. And uh, the, the animation and the special effects still hold up beautifully. But to think 
of being in the theater in 1964 when movie effects like this were not common. A lot of movie effects like this were stop motion, like the original King Kong, you know, things like that, which we now see as very comical special effects. Those were like the main special effects of the day. And then you take this where they, you know, with this magical, not green screen, but like this orangey tinted screen, and they built, they actually built the carousel horses. Uh, the Walt Disney Archives has Mary Poppins and Burt's original um, carousel horses still to this day. Um, you can see them on the Disney Plus show Prop Culture. And then Don Hahn just did a special presented by D23 where he goes through the Walt Disney Archives and they are also featured in that. So you can see how they're still kept in the condition that they are. And anyway, they're gorgeous. But the way that they just like are able to fly, these horses are like flying and they're still going up and down like opposite of each other like a carousel horse does on a round carousel, but they're moving in a straight line. It just kind of like plays with your brain a little bit. And uh, it still blows my mind that they were able to to do that as well as they did. And it's not like they animated that. Like, you can tell that those shots were done in live action. So there's a lot of Disney magic in there. And then from there, right before they head into this horse race, they encounter some hunters who are hunting down this little fox. And uh, this little fox, I think, is just the most adorable little guy he speaks with an Irish accent, which I think is just a fun character trait for him. And he has this cute interaction with Bert. And he's just like, he doesn't really play an integral role in the story. But there are just some characters in this film that are just quite just adorable. And they don't add a ton to the story or anything. They don't change the plot or anything. They're just charming. And that's how I see this little fox guy. So then from there... They're trying to outrun the hunters, and in comes one of my favorite moments of the entire film. There's this horse that can talk, or this, this yeah, the horse can talk, and then there is a hunter on him, and then they're, like, blowing this horn or whatever, and you just see the hunter go, view, hello, and then the horse is like, oh, yes, yes, of you, hello, <laughs> and I always love that line, and I'll randomly quote it, so just know if you ever hear me say that. That is the random, obscure Disney quote <laughs> of that day. And so then Mary Poppins ends up running into this horse race. And she joins right in the middle of it. And, you know, in the classy way that Mary Poppins can, she totally cuts to the front of the race and wins the race. And, you know, she's like, you know, all excited and very professional about it. And <laughs> there are these animated men, gentlemen, who have like their little pocket watches and they're just like, excellent time, you know. <laughs> so it's just so funny how she, uh, Mary Poppins knows how to get what she wants. And I like that about her. <laughs> and uh, going further into the scene, um, there's a, a big hybrid of live action and animation Except for Jane, Michael, Mary, Poppins, and Bert, all the other characters in the scene are animated. So you have human characters that are animated. And so she's got her live-action carousel horse. And then an animated character hands her live-action roses, like a bouquet of roses. And um, again, I just find it very impressive, the transitions and the lines. Like, they aren't blurred. Um, it 
it looks effortless. Again, I, I know I keep using that word, but I don't know how else to describe it. So anyway, she takes a picture and like the smoke from the old vintage cameras is animated. And then that blends into another scene where all these reporters are interviewing her. And uh, they are asking her, how does it feel to win the race? And they said, there are probably no words to describe uh, how you're feeling. And she said, now, now, gentlemen, on the contrary, there's a very good word. And then this goes into supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which is quite a compact and time-efficient scene. But it's one of the most iconic moments in the film, definitely one of the most well-known songs. I would think if I were to go uh, in public randomly on a day and grab a microphone and just go up to random strangers and say, sing a song from Mary Poppins, this would probably be the one that they would sing. And um, fun fact, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is in some dictionaries now, which I think is awesome. And uh, the word just kind of came together. I don't believe it originated actually with this film. They took a variation. The Sherman Brothers took a variation of it and then created uh, the word supercal for the movie. Um, But yeah, so... This song is so fun. It's so quick. The choreography that was given to Mary Poppins and Bert is um, it's quick. It's fast. It's sharp. It's um, it's really fun. And to plug the Broadway show here for just a minute, because that's one of my favorite musicals of all time outside of the movie itself. Um, Super Cal is a much more extended scene in the Broadway musical. But the whole idea of the sharp, fast, quirky choreography that is in the original movie is definitely, in my opinion, what inspired all of the choreography for that scene in the musical. Um, So yeah, I love seeing how the Broadway musicals aren't an exact copy of their original films, um, but they definitely pay homage and take inspiration from specific scenes, especially when they're expanding on it like they did for the Broadway Super Cow. So anyway, back to the movie. The scene's awesome. I love the kids. They're eating little candied apples and singing and dancing and uh we have to talk about the pearly band so the pearly band is the the group of people that have the instruments they're going um i have this great set of uh mary poppins ornaments and there's a couple members of the pearly band in there and it's so fun and there's even i don't know if it exists anymore just because You know, everything at Disney has been constantly changing since reopening after the pandemic of 2020. And so but at Disneyland, they used to have this little pearly band show and Mary Poppins and Bert would come out and dance and then the pearly band would sing. Um, And it was just the cutest little show. Um, So the pearly band is definitely an unsung hero of this movie. And then, of course, the whole moment ends with um, Mary Poppins is saying, better use this word carefully or it could change your life. And then this man goes, for example, one night I said it to me girl, and now me girl's me wife. (laughs) And then they end the song. And this is one of those scenes where when it ends, I I want to applaud. Like, because it, again, it's so quick. It's so fun. There's so much going on because there's lots of dancing and movement with the animation. And then a lot of choreography for Mary Poppins and Bert as well. And then there's the musicians in the background they've got their little shakers their um tambourine the drums you know all of these things so when the the scene ends i just i'm like oh my gosh this is so cool 
and I just want to applaud. So it goes straight into a rainstorm from there, and everyone gathers under Mary Poppins' parasol, parasol, excuse me. And then they go back to gloomy London where it's raining. And this is a really great character moment of Bert, in my opinion. Um, He is saying goodbye to Mary Poppins and the kids. And Mary Poppins comments on, um, you know, she was disappointed for Bert that because of the rain, all his beautiful chalk pavement pictures were being ruined. And he basically is like, it's not a problem. And uh, as they're going away and he's saying goodbye, he sings another just quick little reprise of Chim Chim Churi. And as he's singing, he's dancing in the rain. And then he starts to take his foot, his feet and just like swish them through all the chalk pavement pictures in essence saying, I don't I don't even care. Like this has been the most fun day. And uh, I just see his smittenness I don't know if that's a word for Mary Poppins in that moment he's like I just got to spend the day in a fantastical place created by my favorite person in the world so anyway it's a great little uh Bert moment so from there Mary Poppins and the kids are back in the nursery and Mary Poppins tells the kids they have to take their medicine and Michael is having a fit about it and she said um, you know, you have wet feet, you, you must take your medicine. And then there's this moment where they all have their spoons and Mary Poppins pours from the medicine bottle, Michael's medicine, and then she pours Jane's medicine and it's a different color. Now, when they filmed this scene, they did not tell the kids that there were going to be different color medicines coming out of the same bottle. So that way they could get a genuine reaction from the kids. And um, little Jane has this great reaction on camera. And she just lets out this little like, <gasps> like scream thing. And uh, it's adorable. Then they uh, take a, they take the spoonful. Mary Poppins has hers as well. And they're all different flavors. Lime cordial for for Jane and strawberry for Michael. And then a classic Mary Poppins moment where she takes hers and says, rum punch quite satisfactory and then she hiccups and it's awesome so from there the kids get in bed and uh michael and jane are just you know oh we couldn't possibly go to sleep we've had such a wonderful day and they're talking all about the horse races and mary poppins is like really oh what a what you know kind of going on about it and uh Jane says, well, don't you remember Mary Poppins? And she basically just tells them, never mind that. And uh, she tells Michael to go to sleep. And Michael goes, no, I do not want to go to sleep. Uh, (laughs) Michael's got an attitude and it's hilarious. So she just says, all right, then suit yourselves. And begins to sing this lullaby called Stay Awake, which is the ultimate song of reverse psychology And it's awesome. So basically, instead of saying, go to sleep, rest your head on your pillow, she says, stay awake, don't rest your head, don't lie down upon your bed, and goes on and on. And it's this sweet, maybe, I don't think the song's even two minutes long. It's a short one, but it's perfect. And of course, within that time, both of the kids fall asleep. And it's just such a sweet little scene and um, I think shows some of the nurturing side 
of Mary Poppins. Um, and that she really does care about the kids. And even though she's not a mom herself, um, there's a reason that she loves taking care of children. And it's because she has a soft place in her heart for them. And so you see more of her character, like more of her vulnerable side come out um, when she's not with the Banks kids. And so this is this is a moment of that where she's with them, but they're asleep. So they're not really seeing her more in the, her nurturing side. Um, and I think it's just a great moment for her. So then we go to the next day and they are out. The kids and Mary Poppins are out running errands and they're going to. And this is a fun shout out for those who know the musical or the books um, to Mrs. Corey's shop for some gingerbread. Uh, Mrs. Corey is one of the featured characters in the musical and uh, she is the super cow turns into like a trio of Bert, Mary Poppins, and Mrs. Corey in the musical version of the song. So I thought that was always fun. It was a detail I didn't notice when I was younger, but when I started learning more about the, the Mary Poppins Broadway musical, I hear Mary Poppins say, now we're going to Mrs. Corey's shop for some gingerbread. And she just goes, gingerbread. And uh, then they talk about going to the market to get some fish. And then all of a sudden, the little dog, Andrew, who we saw earlier in the movie, he comes and is talking to Mary Poppins. Now, the dog is barking, and Mary Poppins is understanding everything the dog is saying. <laughs> and they go back and forth, and she um, has a big expression of uh, care and concern on her face. And the kids are like, what the heck is going on? And then in the middle of the dog telling his spiel, barking, he sneezes, and then Mary Poppins just goes, bless you. And then he keeps going, and it's uh, such a cute moment. Um, and then she says something like, oh, we'll go straight away. And then the dog says one more thing. And <laughs> the kids go, what did he say? And Mary Poppins says, he said you're welcome. <laughs> She's so dang cheeky, and I love it. <laughs> but anyway, so... Michael says, I thought we were going to get some fish. And, and she said, there's been a change of plans. And so they head into this darker like alley in London. And uh, Andrew, the dog, takes them there. And uh, <laughs> Mary Poppins just looks at him and says, now, no need to worry. Why don't you go home and put your feet up? And then the dog walks away. She rings the doorbell or knocks on the door, one of the two. And Bert opens the door. Again, very concerned like look on his face and uh he just says uh i i came the moment i heard and harry poppins is like is how is he doing you know all the things and then we go into uncle albert's house and uncle albert is a beloved character um in this movie he has like a small featured role here but he is like a disney mainstay especially um back in the day his name is ed Wynn. probably what he's most famous for outside of being uncle albert and mary poppins he was the voice of the mad hatter in alice in wonderland the disney animated movie so anyway, Uncle Albert is on the ceiling because he's been laughing too much. And of course, that's what happens when you're so captivated with laughter that you start to float on the ceiling. And uh, it's so funny how they treat it like it's this big illness. And uh, it it just turns into this really funny, um, comical scene. And um, 
I, I just think it's the cutest. And it goes into another song and, and Mary Poppins starts to explain to the kids and Bert as well, like, don't don't laugh. It'll only make them worse. And I'm pretty sure Bert says something like last time it took us three days to get him down. <laughs> He's like trying to not laugh. And then Uncle Albert starts singing and like Bert totally loses it. And uh, he starts cackling and Mary Poppins is like, you're no help at all. And <laughs> so Mary Poppins has her own little bit of the song. Some people laugh through their noses, sounding something like this. <laughs> this is literally how I do the scene every time, like laughing so hard. I think it's just good, clean, innocent comedy, like I'm one of those people, if I look at someone who's laughing, I'm going to start laughing. And uh, that's exactly how I feel in this scene. And then at some point, Bert totally loses it and he starts floating on the ceiling as well. And then the kids lose it. Um, And so they start floating up on the ceiling and Mary Poppins tries to pull them down at one point and she's successful. And then eventually they all end up going up to the ceiling and they all end up having their afternoon tea on the ceiling and... And Uncle Albert uh, or Mary Poppins is like, hey, we need to go. And uh, Uncle Albert says, oh, please stay. I already have a spot of tea ready. And she says, and it's getting cold. And then he starts to say, well, yes, I was hoping that maybe you could. And then the table starts to float up to the ceiling with Mary Poppins magic, of course. And then um, (laughs) Mary Poppins says, next, I assume you'll uh, expect me to pour out. And she says, if I must, I must. And then floats up to the ceiling with everyone else and uh, starts pouring everyone's tea. And um, again, this is another staggering moment of just the special effects that it took to make this scene happen, to hide those wires. Um, In this scene, they had the two kids on wires. They had three adults because they had Uncle Albert, Bert and Mary Poppins. And then they also had the table. And then there were some parts where like Bert, there's this moment where he's kind of like stomping his feet on the ceiling. They actually filmed that. I believe they filmed that upside down. So again, how they were able to like put everything together was like this big puzzle of a special effects moment um, in this scene. I actually, I don't know how I came by this, but Facebook sometimes has these little gems of like behind the scenes photos from movies. And one of them, was a scene it was from this scene and it was just a shot of how everything looked without the special effects and there's wires everywhere and the everyone has their own like little seats and uh, while they're sitting down for tea and so they had to like custom do custom molds um on all of those so that way everyone would sit like comfortably in the seats so they basically like had to they did like an essence like a butt mask I think uh, to make those like little uh, seats for them that were floating. So anyway, just a really impressive scene overall. And the the puns and the jokes in the scene are like so delightful to me. Um, I think it's so, so funny. Um, the one, oh gosh, what is it when uh, Bert's like, um, I have a brother who works in a shop, uh, a watch factory. And uh, Uncle Hubbard says, a watch factory? What does he do? And then Bert, like, about to lose everything. He's like, he stands around all day and makes faces. <laughs> and what's even funnier than the jokes is especially the 
the bouncing off of each other that uh, Dick Van Dyke and Ed Wynn did in this scene is quite remarkable. And their reactions to each other's jokes are even funnier than the jokes themselves in this scene. And it's it's just awesome. So then Mary Poppins, uh, or the kids are asking, you know, or you know, they're talking about there's we may have to stay here because there's no way to get down. And then Uncle Albert begins to explain the only way to get down is to think of something really sad. And so then he and Mary Poppins begs him, please tell us a sad story so that way we can get on with it. And he starts to tell this sad story about this uh, man who came to this woman and said, I'm so sorry, but I just ran over your cat. And then they're all, you know, starting to float down to the ground. And uh, the man, the joke is the man told the woman, I, I would like to replace your cat. And the woman said, well, that's fine with me, but how are you with chasing mice? And then you see this look on Mary Poppins' face of like, oh, gosh. <laughs> and then they all float back up to the ceiling, like laughing hysterically. The kids are doing flips in their little uh, like harnesses. And it's oh, it's so funny. So anyway. Mary Poppins looks at her pocket watch and says, it's time to go home. And then they're all like, oh, that's so sad. And then they all float down and and uh, Uncle Albert's just like, must you really go? And he's got a cute lisp. It's so fun. Uh, and then Bert tries to cheer him up with a really bad joke. And uh, then Uncle Albert or Bert says, you know, I say that there's nothing like a good joke. And Uncle Albert goes, and that was not a very good joke. And then the scene ends with them like weeping hysterically. And I just, it, again, this is kind of like Super Cal where it's a pretty condensed scene, very time efficient, but it, there's a lot accomplished. And I think it's just, it's so fun. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't really add to the plot of the story, but it's just a different adventure that they go on. And that's part of the beauty of Mary Poppins is that, you know, there's multiple books and she goes on all these different adventures in all of these different books. And so it's it's part of developing, it's more like the world building of Mary Poppins. Um, and it's not like this scene is necessarily for, we got to push the, the main plot of the story forward. Um, this part of the story is all about getting to know Mary Poppins and seeing her interaction with the kids. And then also us as an audience getting to know Bert and all the different things that he does, the way that he cares for others, the talents that he has, uh, different things like that. So the scene um, after that, they um, were probably pushing forward a little bit, but they uh, go back to the Banks' house and the kids start telling their parents all about the wonder of everything that they've experienced. They had a tea party on the ceiling and they went fox hunting and, you know, they rode a carousel and all these different things. And uh, the whole house is in high spirits and it's, you know, because of Mary Poppins. And uh, they're all going around and singing supergalifragilisticexpialidocious and the whole thing. It's um, so fun to see. So like the cook and the maid and Mrs. Banks and... Um, Mr. Banks is like, this is not, this is not my home. Like, we're not this chipper. This is not how we do things. And so anyway, he gets kind of upset and into everything. And Winifred tries to calm him down, you know, be like, no, George, like, this is good. And then he decides to have a talk with Mary Poppins. And this goes back into kind of like how Bert has different versions of Chim Chim Tree. 
Um, Mr. Banks's theme is the song The Life I Lead. And this version of The Life I Lead is called A British Bank. And he basically explains how his um, he wants his home to be run like a British bank. A British bank is run with precision. A British home requires nothing less. Um, and so Mary Poppins, you know, is is affirming him and saying, you know, I quite agree with everything that you're saying, Mr. Banks. And so this this great again, this is a song where this is really moving the plot forward, which um, great songs in musicals do. And uh, he goes into this rant of, in short, I am disturbed to hear the children talking about jumping in and out of chalk pavement pictures, consulting with racehorse persons, fox hunting. Well, yes, I don't mind that quite so much. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, they're going on and on. These outings must happen. They ought to be fraught with purpose. Yes, and practicality. And then he attempts to say the word supercal, which is very funny. It's kind of an ongoing gag in the movie that he can't say it. He's like, super, 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 you know, and and uh, then he just goes right back into his song. And, and then Mary Poppins chimes in and she says, you know what, Mr. Banks, you are right. They, you know, must feel the thrill of you know, the life that you lead. And so she convinces him that uh, the children should go with him for a day and go to the bank. And uh, so she finishes the song. Um, she says, it's time they learn to walk in your footsteps, to tread your straight and narrow path with pride. And then she ends it with, tomorrow, just as you suggest, pressed and dressed, Jane and Michael will be at your side. And then he's like, I'm sorry, what? And he said, oh, they're going to the bank with you exactly as you've proposed, which he didn't at all. This is, again, Mary Poppins getting into her reverse psychology. And so she leaves and they said, all right, well, it's all settled. And she walks away and and uh, Mr. Banks is like, did I say that? And uh, (laughs) Winifred is like, I I think you did, darling. (laughs) So from there, Mary Poppins explains to the kids that they are going to go to the bank tomorrow with their father. Um, And this happens to fall on the second Tuesday, which is Mary Poppins Day Off, which we talked about at the beginning. She requires every second Tuesday off. And uh, so the kids are like not excited at all about um, going to the bank with their father. And Mary Poppins begins to tell the story um, that while they're on their way, to the bank that they should stop by St. Paul's and they will see this incredible woman, the little old bird woman. And this leads into one of the, um, in my opinion, just a hallmark moment in film, not just in this film, but it's just a classic movie scene and it's so simple. This leads into Feed the Birds, which is actually the very first song that the Sherman brothers wrote for this movie, which I thought was kind of random and they said it came together so quickly um and this song is a very special one um because there are a lot of beautiful messages in it um the chorus feed the birds toppins a bag toppins 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 a bag and uh it just, it, it's a song that talks a lot about just like those simple acts of kindness, even the things that don't cost much. Um, those are our tuppence. What can we do to make someone's life better? Um, 
and this bird woman, you know, her, she just cares for these birds. And so she goes out to the streets, uh, to St. Paul's and asks people to feed the birds. Um, and this is a, a, not just a special song in this movie, but just a very special song in the Disney catalog overall, because, uh, this was Walt Disney's favorite song. And there's this really beautiful story of the Sherman brothers that they tell in that um, interview, that like little quick minute, few minute interview after the Mary Poppins soundtrack I was telling you guys about. Um, There's this moment where they were talking about it. And uh, they said on Fridays, they would go into his office, kind of debrief the week. And uh, Walt Disney had a piano in his office. And, uh, oh, this is another, they explained this story in the Disney Plus series prop culture and then also that Walt Disney Archives special with Don Hahn that was I think that was released it was released on Disney Plus Day in November of this year Um, and they tell the story of you know Walt's office and the piano in the office and they show you uh, because they restored Walt's office to its original glory and uh, the piano that Richard and Robert Sherman, you know, would show Walt these songs, um, it's still in there. And uh, so anyway, they would, you know, debrief about the week and and then Walt would just, uh, sometimes he, they said he would look out the window and then he would just look at Richard and just say, play it. And uh, they knew what that meant. He wanted to hear Feed the Birds. And so Richard would get on that piano and just begin to play. Feed the birds, toppins a bag. And uh, Walt Disney would, at the end of the day, if he liked the work that you did, everyone says that he wouldn't, you know, like praise it or anything. He would just say something like, that'll work. And he would say that every time um, when they would sing that song to him. And uh, so it's just a very, very, very special song, um, not just to this movie, but to the culture of Disney and then also Walt Disney himself. And it's so fun to hear Richard Sherman talk about it uh, because his brother Robert passed away, but he's still alive. And so you'll hear him in interviews talk about how special it is uh, to play the song for Walt. And the piano that is in Walt's office to this day, the only person allowed to play it is Richard Sherman. And uh, it's really beautiful. So I would recommend checking out him playing it on that D23 Walt Disney Archive special or on the Mary Poppins episode of Prop Culture because it's it's beautiful and it's a very emotional moment. It's, yeah, it's the best. I could literally talk about Feed the Birds all day long. It's so special, but we must move on. As Mary Poppins says, <laughs> I will not have my schedule interrupted. <laughs> so we're moving on to the next scene. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot to mention this. So... How they start the song of Mary Poppins, uh, Feed the Birds, I apologize, is with this snow globe. It's a snow globe of St. Paul's, and instead of it being snow in the snow globe, it's all the birds. Um, So it's this beautiful motif and prop, and they they talk about the prop more in-depth on that uh, special prop culture on Disney+, Plus that series. And uh, they, it was like, it totally disappeared. No one found it for years. And then it ended up in a janitor's closet. And the archives got a hold of it and they restored it. They put a new glass in it. Um, and it's it's so cool that um, this scene specifically has such an, an integral like 
part of it is the prop itself, which <laughs> blows my mind that I forgot to mention it a second ago. So anyway, that is a very important part of that scene. So now moving on, the next thing we see is the kiddos walking with their dad uh, to the bank the following morning. And Michael sees the bird woman and the kids are all excited because they're hearing her say, feed the birds, tuppence a bag. And uh, Michael wants to give his tuppence so the way he can feed the birds. And his father says, absolutely not. I am going to take you to the bank and you will see how to handle those uh, tuppence properly. So they head into the bank and they meet this whole group of chairmen at the bank. And there is Mr. Dawes Jr. And then there's Mr. Dawes Sr. And there's a a whole group of men, but those are the main ones that we see. And Mr. Dawes Sr. is played by none other than Dick Van Dyke. And it's just pure comedic gold. Um... Dick Van Dyke desperately wanted to play this part. He asked Walt Disney if he could. Walt Disney originally said no. And then I'm pretty sure that Dick Van Dyke paid Walt Disney to so that way <laughs> he would let him do it. Um, and then Dick Van Dyke did a screen test and uh, Walt Disney thought it was hysterical. And so he was convinced. And so that's how he got to do the role. But they originally didn't want him to do it. And Dick Van Dyke tells this story because on the Disney lot, I don't know if they still do, but they used to have a commissary where everyone would eat together. And uh, there would be lots of bus tours that would come in and out of there. And so one day, or he said whenever he was in like the old wrinkled like mask and costume and stuff, uh, during lunchtime when there were lots of tour buses coming through, he would like, you know, pre- pretend to be the old man and, you know, hobble around. And then as soon as the tour bus um, was <laughs> like driving away, he would like just bolt across the parking lot or whatever just to mess with people. And so he he tells very sweet stories. <laughs> of all of that um so he's hysterical in this scene and the way that he plays an old man so well it just it's it's so funny and he's he's such a talented um well-versed actor and it's just so fun to see so then this goes into the song fidelity fiduciary bank and uh you know they're telling the kids um you know, you need to invest your tuppence and all this stuff. And and Michael says, but I wanted to feed the birds. And uh, (laughs) Mr. Dawes Sr. says something to the effect of, "Um, what do you get when you feed birds? Fat birds. (laughs) It's just a great line. Um, And then they go into the song. It's this whole parade type thing. Fidelity, fiduciary bank. Um, And then at the end of it, Uh, Because Michael still has his tuppence in his hand and he really doesn't want to give them up. But Mr. Doss Sr. takes it out of his hand and says, welcome to our family of investors. And then Michael basically tries to tackle Mr. Doss Sr. And he's like, give me back my tuppence. And then this causes a run on the bank because everyone else who's in the bank, they're saying, they won't give this man his money. Well, I want all of my money, too. And so they shut down the bank and everyone's in a you know, big rage and all this stuff. And uh, the children run away from their father and start to chase down or not chase down. They they uh, start just running through the city. Um, and it's kind of like through these dark alleyways and things. So you really get to see kind of like a gloomy type side of, of London, which is very characteristic of the city. 
And then they're running and they run into someone. And this man grabs onto Jane. And I think this moment is such a great little Michael moment. He like starts trying to pull on Jane and try to like beat off this man and say, let go of my sister, you know. And then they realize that it's Bert. And uh, Jane just goes, you look filthy. Um, (laughs) Because he is a chimney sweep now. And his face is covered in soot. His hands are covered. And uh, then he just starts walking with the kids. And he said, I'll walk you home. And they start explaining to him everything that was going on with their dad. Um, And they were just, you know, talking about how upset they were with him. And Bert, in this moment, offers a very interesting perspective. And um, if you listen to Disorder, every Disney film, they uh, they have an interesting explanation of this and an interesting perspective. So I'm pulling a little bit from their information that they give. But basically what Bert talks about is, you know, he affirms that, you know, your father cares for you and he loves you. And the kids are like, I don't think so. And then he starts to explain to them, you know, at the end of the day, when you have a hard day, you get to go home to your mother. You get to go home to your father who can help, you know, dry your eyes and, you know, talk your concerns with you or, you know, the maid or the cook or whoever. And he says, but your father, your father doesn't have anyone like he's he's the one who handles the weight of the family. And uh, so just like offering them a little bit of perspective of maybe where their father is coming from, even if because uh, Bert doesn't affirm that their father's doing the right thing by behaving the way that he is. I think what he's doing in that moment is just trying to show them a different perspective and uh, help them maybe empathize a little bit with where their father is. And it's a great, great heartfelt scene in the middle of this very fast paced moving film. Um, I will say, though, this is the one part of the film that I feel does slow down a little bit. Um, But thankfully, it picks right back up when Bert starts to sing Chim Chim Cheree. So he's walking them home. And now we get the main version, the Oscar winning version of Chim Chim Cheree. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. And uh, he starts explaining the legend to them of good luck will rub off when a chimney shakes your hand. And this was something that the Sherman brothers were fascinated with, uh, this whole English legend of a chimney sweep. And they bring good luck. If you blow them a kiss, that's lucky as well. And so they wanted to create a song all around that theme. And uh, they decided to write it in a three, four times. So it's kind of like a waltz. One, do, 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 do. Um, and they just talked about their um, their songwriting process with it and uh, it's just it's just fun to hear how the song came together so I recommend listening to any Sherman Brothers interview you can get your hands on because it's so fun to hear them talk about how they how they wrote these songs and uh, so anyway they're walking through the streets of London there's some other just like ensemble characters that we only see this one time this man coming and or actually it's a couple of women uh shaking the hand of the chimney sweep and then a woman in a carriage blowing a kiss to Bert and uh then they end up at the Banks's house so at this moment Bert is just planning on dropping the kids off Mrs. Banks opens the door and then she realizes Mary Poppins it's her day off and the maid and the cook can't help. And so Mrs. Banks has a, a suffragette meeting to go to. And so she asks Bert 
if he can stay and watch the children. And he says, oh, no, I must get back to work. Uh, lots of stopped up chimneys. And she goes, chimney, how clever of you to know. And uh, basically gives a reason for him to come clean out the chimney so that way he'll stay with the kids. So he obliges. He goes inside. And from there, we go into uh, the next part of Chim Chim Tree. I choose me bristles with pride. Yes, I do. A broom for the shaft and a brush for the flue. And he starts explaining to them kind of how it all works. And uh, there's like a big tug, you know, like the suction from a chimney. And they said, you can you can feel it. And uh, so he gives one of the chimney sweep brooms to one of the kids. And Mary Poppins walks back in and uh, she says, you must always be very careful around a fireplace. And then all of a sudden, Michael shoots up the chimney <laughs> Again, a very cool special effect. And then he comes like floating down. So basically the sweet broom turns into a umbrella of sorts and he kind of floats down onto the roof. And then the same thing happens with Jane. And uh, and so they're both up there and Mary Poppins is like, oh, there goes the other one. And she's like, well done, Bert. Like <laughs> these kids are just going nuts. And uh, so then Bert says, well, should we go up there? And uh Mary Poppins says, well, we can't have them gallivanting like kangaroos, now can we? <laughs> Again, just great writing in this movie. So Bert goes up, and then Mary Poppins is the last one out. Um, or is she? No, Bert is the last one out. So she comes out, but she doesn't use a chimney sweep broom. She uses her umbrella. She comes out, and that's like that iconic... You know, she's got her her feet turned out. The the umbrella is open and she's got some soot on her face and she grabs the kids jackets and says, well, you put your jacket like your coats on. And then Bert comes out. And then they go on an adventure on the rooftops of London. And there's this great moment where Mary Poppins pulls out a compact and she's got this little like uh, brush or little puff that she, you know, is trying to fix herself and literally just puts much more soot on her face. And she's like, fall in. <laughs> and they all get in line. And then this is a part where you really see Mary Poppins starting to play and having a very fun adventure. And so they're walking, they're marching. And this is so fun to see them walking through the rooftops of London. So you're getting a really cool view of the city because they're so high up. Um, but then you're also getting to see these this beautiful set design in this moment. So Tony Walton, another shout out to him. And um, also all of the background paintings. Because again, this was not shot on location. This was shot in a studio lot in Los Angeles. And so just the incredible paintings that were done um are just yeah they are breathtaking and really in my opinion look very realistic but they also have like that storybook look to them which makes sense because this is you know a story based on a book and so then we go to one more reprise of chim chim cheree which is the classic mary poppins and bert duet when you're with a sweep you're in glad company and so Oh, it's just beautiful. And I love in this moment, Mary Poppins creates this staircase with the smoke. And so they're walking up the staircase, but how they fabricated the staircase was the steps where they stepped their feet were not wood. They were some kind of sinking foam. So that way it really looked like what it would look like if you were walking up a smoky staircase. Um, and then they bring, they... Uh, 
go down a little bit more, like since they've gone up to see such a beautiful view of the city. And Bert says, and where do you get a view like this? Uh, who gets a view like this? The birds, the stars, and the chimney sweeps. Um, again, oh, I always get choked up when I say that line. Uh, and Mary Poppins says, it's beautiful, but we must get into it because of the cold air. Uh, and then they go down another cloud of smoke, and it's like an elevator, and you hear an elevator ding, and I got ahead of myself. This is where the duet with Mary Poppins and Bert finishing out Chim Chim Cherie finishes. Um, so they finish singing. They're on a lower rooftop now. And then we head into, I'm just going to give it away now, probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, Step in Time. So they truly waste no time here, and they just go straight into it. And as they finish out singing, Chim Chimini Chim Chim Cherie Chim Churu, you hear these other chimney sweeps start to yell, Cheryl! And all of these guys start popping out of, uh, like, smokestacks and chimneys. And Bert just says, oh, it's all me pals. And then he throws his uh, sweet broom and just says, step in time, step in time. And then the music starts and all the guys are jumping out of the chimneys and the smokestacks. And then begins... This incredible number. It's a great song, and the dancing is, it may be better than the song itself. It's what makes the scene so iconic, not just in Disney, but in cinematic history as a whole. We have to give a, another shout-out here to Mark Burrow, Mark Burrow and Dee Dee Wood. Um, their, their choreography in the scene is flawless. Um, they... They worked with the different choreographers. I'm not sure of the names, um, but they were like protégés of choreographers who did the dancing uh, and the choreography in movies like Hello, Dolly! and uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which are very athletically driven, choreographed numbers. And you totally see that at play here uh, in Step in Time. There's a lot of acrobatics, um, but then also just a lot of good dancing. And it's so quirky. It's fun. It really combines the essence of all of the, like, choreographed, danced expression that we've seen in this movie so far. It's really a culmination of that. And uh, there's some parts where it looks like they're wobbling around like penguins, um, which is a callback, you know, of course, to Jolly Holiday. And uh, they take full advantage of this incredible setup that they have with the rooftops of London. So many male dancers. And I love to see that. There's just something so strong uh, about seeing a group of guys just all dancing together um not like partner dancing but like strong choreography it's um it's quite breathtaking to watch and this is a scene that I studied a lot especially when I was in the Mary Poppins musical because I wanted to get the delicate little intricacies of their movement the very detailed little quirks and things that Mark Burrow and Dee Dee Wood would add um and how they the dancers, the chimney sweeps, their artistic interpretation of the choreography that they were given, how it all came together. And so I I have watched this scene endlessly. And the Broadway version is also very good. It's totally different, um, but I love that it pays homage to the original. But the original is as good as it gets, in my opinion. Um, there's times where they're flying on wires. Um, and Walt Disney really wanted to have that wow factor of like the making the audience kind of jump out of their seats. And so there's this scene where 
these sweeps are doing these handstands, but their hand, one hand is on one roof and then their other hand is on another. And then where their bodies are, they're balancing back and forth between these two roofs. And so it looks like, you know, they're kind of hanging in the balance and then they drop all of a sudden and then they flip up again. And uh, it's, it's so much fun. And then there's this great part where Mary Poppins dances with them. It's kind of like polka style, how she dances with them. And then she does a movement and then she, they copy her. It's just great. And I know I mentioned this earlier in Jolly Holiday, um, but Dick Van Dyke had no formal dance training. And so to see him not only keep up with these professional dancers, but like lead the group is phenomenal in the scene. And it like my jaw is on the floor every time I watch the scene, especially watching him because What's so cool about, obviously, he's very agile and he can move very well and he can dance very well. But because he doesn't have professional dance training pre-Mary Poppins, um, there's, it's almost like, but not in a bad way. His movement just isn't as refined, but it's very in the character of Bert. So it's like the integrity of the choreography is there, but it's just like, it's not perfect, but I think that's good. And um, it adds, it adds a lot to that moment. And so they're dancing on the rooftops and then Admiral Boom um, and his lackey are uh, disturbed by it. And so they load up their cannon with a bunch of fireworks and again, kind of random, but I really like it. And then they fire them off and (laughs) uh, one of the I think it's Bert hits with his chimney broom uh, one of the fireworks and shoots it back to Admiral Boom and Mr. Binnacle and uh, uh Admiral Boom just says, good hit, sir. Very well hit. <laughs> and uh, so then they climb down a chimney, all the chimney sweeps do, so that way they can get away from all the fireworks. And uh, they all end up in the Banks' house. And the, I have no idea, like, how they, from a set building perspective, how they built the fireplace the way that they did in the Banks' house, because it had to be big enough where grown men could let they like all do like these somersaults out of the chimney onto the floor in the room um it's it's quite remarkable to watch um and so I just think about like man the amount of intentionality and skill that went into building these sets is quite remarkable and so um, they're in there and they're still singing Step in Time and so the maid and the cook get into it and then Mrs. Banks comes in and she says or she's a uh She's asking them like, oh, if you have a second and then they're they're all looking at her and they say votes for women step in time. And so she gets all into it, too. And then Mr. Banks walks in with his jaw on the floor, but like not in a good way. He's just in utter shock. And uh, what's so fun about the chimney sweeps is they're kind of like mimics and they kind of echo everything that someone says. And so the maid says, it's the master. (laughs) And then uh, it's the master step in time. It's the master step in time. And so Mr. Banks is thrown in the chaos of it all. And then they're all leaving the house and they're all shaking his hand. And little Michael tries to get out and he covers his face with his hat. And his father stops him and he just says, good luck, Gavna. And then um, all the chimney sweeps, they're like doing, you know, backflips and backhand springs and all this stuff. And just running down the street, uh, Cherry Tree Lane. And uh, that's where the whole song ends. And... I think in total, it's about a 14 minute long number from start to finish. And it's it's incredible. So 
From there, we go back into the house and the kiddos are sent to their rooms and Mary Poppins has her classic line. Mr. Banks says, Mary Poppins, do you care to explain all of this? And she said, first of all, I I would like to make one thing quite clear. I never explain anything. And then she just keeps walking up the stairs with the kids. And then comes into a really great moment with Bert and Mr. Banks. And we really see a lot more of Mr. Banks's human side. He goes back into a reprise of The Life I Lead. This version is called A Man Has Dreams. And uh, he says, a man has dreams of walking with giants to carve his niche in the edifice of time. Um... And then he talks about how, like, all of that is taken away from him because things go wrong and da-da-da. And, and Bert, you know, just is, as he's cleaning up the house from all the soot and the brooms everywhere, he uh, just says, life's a rum-go, governor, I can imagine. And uh, so he starts, Mr. Banks starts talking to Bert and he says, you know, everything in my life was fine until this, this Mary Poppins showed up. And, of course, Bert knows that, like, of course it's Mary Poppins who's changed everything. She's the greatest human of all time. But Mr. Banks is like processing it in that moment. And so it's fun to hear uh, Mr. Banks be like, it's it's absurd and all these things. And uh, Bert, again, like he did with the kids, starts to offer a different perspective. And he says, you know, you know, basically paraphrasing, like you have a lot to do, but your kids aren't going to be young forever. Childhood, uh, he says, though, childhood slips like sand through a sieve. And... uh, he says, all too soon they're up and grown and uh, and then they've flown and it's too light for you to give just that spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. And uh, so Bert leaves in that moment. And again, that's just a really great moment with Bert and Mr. Banks. It's like it shows very much, again, the vulnerability of Mr. Banks. And just how Bert was able to do with the kids, he offers Mr. Banks a different perspective. And I love how Bert, it's not like he chooses sides. He is almost like the right-hand man of Mary Poppins, because I think her ultimate goal is to bring this family back together. And Bert is partnering with her to do that. And there's a comfort level with Mr. Banks who, you know, he can talk to Bert, whereas he would never say have a conversation with Mary Poppins the way that he would with Bert. And so he takes, Bert takes advantage of that in this moment. And uh, then Mr. Banks gets a call from the bank. They ask him to come in. He knows that this is not good news. And so he walks out and starts to head to the bank. And uh, there's this beautiful score of a reprise of Feed the Birds in this scene. And this is just really well shot. It's like late at night, and uh, just, again, gloomy London, street lamps on, and uh, he shows up at the bank. He goes to the boardroom, and <laughs> this great scene, uh, Mr. Dawes Jr. explains, um, you know, do you remember the last time there was a run on this bank? And he talks, uh, Mr. Banks answers and talks about the Boston Tea Party, and uh <laughs> He he has this little like line jab and it's so funny. He talks about how the American colonists threw the tea overboard and he said uh, this made the tea unsuitable for drinking, even for Americans. And he tries to like giggle and wear off the moment, but no one's having it. And uh, 
Then Mr. Dawes Sr. chimes in and says, we have not had another run on this bank since that day until today. And so basically they blame Mr. Banks for everything that happened, the way that his son acted. And so he basically has this ceremonial disgracing from the board, uh, the chairman. And uh, so they like punch a hole through his bowler cap. They rip off the carnation that's on the lapel of his jacket and they uh, like overextend his umbrella and uh, just to like shame him, basically. And they're very they're basically like, so what do you have to say? And uh, he digs in his pocket and he finds tuppence uh, that Michael um, earlier gave him as an apology um, for all the ruckus and things. And so he felt that tuppence in his pocket and he looks at it. And this is where the transformation of Mr. Banks happens. And he starts to giggle because they asked him, what do you have to say for yourself? And he just says, all I have to say is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And he starts laughing. And uh, this is like, I see this as like the revival moment. I see this as the moment where Mr. Banks's childhood is restored um, in him. And it's like his inner child wakes back up. And uh, they go into a little bit more detail about the side of his character in the musical of Mary Poppins. So we don't really get to see that, like what his childhood was like. But in the musical, they explain that um, he had a very cruel nanny growing up and his parents were be glad they were glad to be rid of him. And so he didn't really have a childhood because he had a very strict, unkind nanny. And then he never had time with his parents. And so in this moment, seeing that childlikeness uh, revitalized in him is so cool to watch. And all the chairmen are like, what's going on with you, Banks? You've gone mad. And and then he starts to tell jokes, uh, jokes that Jane and Michael had told him from their outing with Uncle Albert and the tea party on the ceiling. And Mr. Banks gives uh, Mr. Doss Sr. the tuppence. He says, here's your tuppence, got it well. And uh, he just starts to leave and is singing a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, you know, clicking his heels as he leaves the room. And one of the jokes that he told was the one about a wooden man, uh, a wooden leg named Smith. And... uh, so the joke goes like, I know a man with a wooden leg named Smith, and what's the name of his other leg, you know? And uh, so Mr. Doss Sr. just goes, he's thinking about it. A, a wooden leg named Smith. A wooden leg named Smith. And then he stops, and he just starts wheezing because he's laughing so hard, and then he floats up to the ceiling. And so Mr. Doss Jr. is just like screaming. He's like, Father! <laughs> and all the things. So then... We fade into the next scene, which is basically a reversal of a scene we saw at the beginning. The wind uh, on the weather vane changed from the west to the east, and now it's changing back from the east to the west. Because, of course, the classic winds in the east, mist coming in, something is brewing and about to begin. So from here we can tell things are about to change uh, because the wind is changing and Mary Poppins only promised to stay until the wind changed. And so she starts to gather her belongings. The children are crying. They're very upset because Mary Poppins is leaving. And, uh, yeah, they basically just say, you won't leave us, Mary Poppins. And she just looks at them and she says, spitzbot. And then they walk out of the room because their father came in 
and started calling for them. So a quick scene right before this, Mrs. Banks is, uh, she can't find her husband anywhere because apparently he's been like dancing around the city all night singing a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Um, and so the constable is there trying to search for the man and um, the, the maid is like, maybe he jumped in the river. And then <laughs> Mrs. Banks is like, really, Ellen? Uh, so she, like, Mrs. Banks is so distraught. And then he comes in. He looks all disheveled, um, but is so happy. And he uh, greets his wife with a kiss. And the constable has some really great lines in this moment. And uh, he's just like, he's here. And he's kissing the missus. Um, and then he uh, he starts calling for Jane and Michael. So then we go back upstairs where the kids are upset that Mary Poppins is leaving. And she says, your father's calling you. And uh, she said, spit spot. And so they left. And uh, they come down the stairs. Oh, man. I hoped I wasn't going to cry. But I'm totally going to cry. And it's fine. Um, they come They come to the banister at the top of the staircase. And their father's hand is behind his back. And um, <laughs> he pulls out the kite um, that was broken at the beginning of the movie. And uh, they see that he's fixed it. And Michael just yells, he mended it. And then they run down the stairs and they come and greet him. And um, they're so excited. And um, then little Jane says, um, however, did you manage it? And then we go into the final song of this movie, um, which is Let's Go Fly a Kite. The Sherman Brothers had originally written a completely different um, ending song, and Walt Disney said something to the effect of, that ends the second act of a play, but that does not end my movie. And so they completely went through again and wrote this classic British three-quarter time type finale song, and it's it's perfect. And um, you see, like, with Walt's opinions on things, his hand is truly... Uh, you can see his handiwork in uh, every bit of this movie and even, you know, things like that, the different opinions he has. But we just go into this joyous celebration of let's go fly a kite up to the highest height. And uh, you just see them jumping and skipping around the living room and and Mrs. Banks is you know uh playing with her skirt and dancing with them and then right before they go outside to go fly the kite um she brings out her suffragette um little sash that she was wearing and uh says a line to the effect of you know a proper kite needs a proper tail don't you think and attaches it and so it's so cool oh shoot here it goes um that the family put all these different um like their pieces of who they are even though they're like imperfect and everything they put them together and make this beautiful kite um that goes on to soar and i think that's um just another beautiful little like motif moment of showing um this family's journey from the start of the movie to hear the finale and then they go outside skipping and singing and Mary Poppins just watches from her bedroom window um, with such delight to see um, this family back together. Um, <laughs> I'm so oh, overly emotional. Um, 
Then, of course, we see Bert in another occupation as a, a kite maker. And uh, he's selling kites on the streets because there's so many people out uh, flying kites. And uh, the Sherman brothers talked about as well that this song was special for them because their father was an excellent kite maker. And so for them, it was like a call back to their childhood writing this this scene in this song. And uh, you see that moment where the kite... Uh, Mr. Banks has it, uh, he's holding the kite, and then Michael is holding the string, and Michael just yells, no, and he throws it up, and the chorus goes, let's go fly a kite up to the hives. It's just so, it's cinematic, it's Broadway, it's uh, all of my favorite things. And then they're flying the kite, and Mr. Dawes Jr. is right next to him, flying a kite himself, and he told Mr. Banks, you know, my father died laughing last night. Um, and Mr. Banks says, I'm so sorry. And, and uh, he said, don't be. I've never seen him happier in his life. <laughs> I can't even get it out without crying. Um, and again, it's just like that going back to laughter and going back to childhood. And, and literally in that moment, you know, this very old man, he said he's never been happier in his whole life. And it makes me think of that scripture in Nehemiah that uh, says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And that's exactly what I feel in that moment. So anyway, they offer Mr. Banks a position as a new partner because, you know, they, they needed a new partner since Mr. Doss Sr. passed away. And so uh, to signify that, Dawes Jr. puts a red carnation back on his lapel and he says, congratulations, Banks. And uh, so it's like, um, everything just starts to fall into place um, in this in this finale. And then Mary Poppins is leaving. And uh, I love the moment when uh, Dawes Jr. congratulates Mr. Banks. And he, uh, he turns to Mrs. Banks and she just gives him a big kiss on the cheek. And um, again, the like the underscore of let's go fly a kite is under all this. And then the chorus comes in and then Mary Poppins is walking out of the house. And this is the one moment in the film where the umbrella, the parrot head, talks. And this umbrella parrot head was actually voiced by David Tomlinson, who is Mr. Banks. And uh, they teased the idea. I couldn't remember if I had mentioned this or not earlier, but they teased the idea of the parrot talking through the whole movie, but they decided to leave it just for the end, which I think is just such a fun little quirk um, for this movie. And uh, she, <laughs> the parrot head is like, well, there's love for you. You know, they, they don't even care about you. It's just, you know, they just are with their parents now. And, and Mary Poppins just sighs and says, as it should be. And uh, that's as it should be. And, and uh, he basically asks her if she's grown attached to them. And, and she says something to, something to the effect of, you know, you can never grow attached to those that you're working with or whatever. And uh, the parrot's like, well, I don't buy it one bit. And, uh, you know, so they bicker a little bit back and forth. And then he stops talking and she says, that will be quite enough. Thank you. And then she turns the umbrella around, gives a nod, and then uh, floats into the sky. Um, <laughs> you notice as I, like, cry, my voice starts to get a lot higher. Um, and... Then we get this great moment of, it again, such film iconography of her floating up into the sky, flying away. And Bert is the only one who notices that she leaves. And uh, 
He just looks at her with a big smile on his face and says, goodbye, Mary Poppins. Don't stay away for too long. And uh, then she looks back at him, gives him a smile, and then she um, looks forward. Uh, it reminds me of that quote from Walt Disney, we keep moving forward. And uh, that's it. That's the movie. Credits rolling. Um, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful film from front to back. Um, I love in the credits when they are uh, giving the credit for Mr. Dawes Sr. And they have Dick Van Dyke's name all jumbled up and then they like unjumble it to show like, yes, it was Dick Van Dyke. Um, so, yeah, that is. Yeah, that's Mary Poppins, 1964. Um, it is it is truly a beautiful movie. It is all about. I mean, for me, it's all about um, the reuniting of family. And I think that that's so special. But I don't want to get into my final thoughts yet because I want to talk about um, some fun like box office things. This is always fascinating to me. So in its initial release, it made $31 million. Um, and in 1964, that was a huge success. Um, and overall, I would have to do a little bit more research for overall because it's hard to factor in like, oh, this is how much it made in the theater versus DVD release or VHS release, you know, things like that. But this movie <laughs> has made millions of dollars, <laughs> um, whether through the music or uh, the toys, all of those things. And um, th this movie got a lot of attention at the Oscars. Um, Mary Poppins had 13 Oscar nominations. That is... Um, definitely in the higher range, I believe. Um, I mean, most movies don't get that many nominations. From recent memory, the movie that I feel like has gotten a number like that, I think it was around 13 as well, was La La Land. Um, but it's like a rarity that movies get that many nominations. Um, so they had 13 nominations and five wins. Their wins were for Best Film Editing, Best Music Score, Best Song for Chim Chim Cheree, um, Best Special Visual Effects, which we talked about that a lot um, with the different scenes like Step in Time and Jolly Holiday um, and Super Cow, all the incredible special effects um, that were in that. And then the final Oscar win was Julie Andrews as Best Actress in Mary Poppins. And what's so funny about that is Mary Poppins was a big Broadway star before she uh, did film. This was her very first film ever, so I would say not too shabby, winning the Oscar for Best Actress your first time in a movie. Um, that's a that's a that's quite the way to kick off your cinematic career. And uh, But anyway, she was the original Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady on Broadway. So she played opposite Rex Harrison, who was Henry Higgins, um, and he was cast in the film of My Fair Lady um, and Mary Poppins audition I'm sorry <laughs> Julie Andrews auditioned for it and she didn't get it um, they cast Audrey Hepburn and these films were actually released in the same year um, and so what's so crazy is Julie Andrews if she would have been cast in My Fair Lady would not have been able to do Mary Poppins and so um in her acceptance speech, uh, she closed it uh, with her Best Actress um, win because Audrey Hepburn was nominated as well, but Julie won. Um, and she ended her speech 
by saying, and I would like to thank the man who made this all possible, Mr. Jack Warner. Uh, Jack Warner was with Warner Brothers who produced um, My Fair Lady, the film. And so it was just like a great little jab of like, hey, you said no to me. And thankfully, it it took me to even better places than I could have thought. Um, So anyway, quite hysterical, quite cheeky, quite characteristic of Mary Poppins to have a moment like that. Um, They were also nominated for Best Picture. They did lose to My Fair Lady for that, but Julie Andrews clinched the uh, Best Actress Award for the Oscars, which I think is awesome. Um, Something else that uh, on Disorder they talk about is theme park presence with the different movies, and so that's something I wanted to touch on with Mary Poppins. The first thing that comes to my mind is the Jolly Holiday Bakery and Cafe. If you've listened to other episodes of my podcast, I went into great depth about that in um, my episode about Disneyland. It's my favorite restaurant on Disneyland property, probably Disney property overall, every every Disney park I've been to. Um, so yeah, I love that place. You can get the Jolly Holiday Special, a toasted cheese sandwich with tomato basil soup, and they have the Practically Perfect Punch. I highly recommend. Um, you can meet Mary Poppins especially, and a lot of times you can meet her as well as Bert around the parks. Um, I've also had the opportunity to meet some of the penguin waiters. Um, I'll add a link in the show notes to one of my Disneyland vlogs where um, I have some footage of me uh, meeting those guys. And, oh, they're so cute. And I love them. Uh, So you can, I mean, I feel like in any Disney park overall, like Magic Kingdom in Florida, um, the UK Pavilion at Epcot is another place where you can meet Mary Poppins. Um, Disneyland in different locations, you can meet her. Um, now granted this, this, all of this park talk is, um, pre shut down because I haven't been back, uh, to the parks since February of 2020, right before everything happened. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, places that you can meet and greet her. I have many memories of, of uh, interactions with Mary Poppins over the years at the different parks. I always try to to snag a picture with her if I can, uh, just because she's the best. Um, they've really taken advantage of Mary Poppins in the parades at Disney. Um, my favorite Disney parade of all time is the Mickey's Sensational Parade. It's a um, retired parade at Disneyland, and that parade ends with this awesome Mary Poppins float, uh, chimney sweep, like dancers going all around the parade route. And then Mary Poppins and Bert are on their carousel horses. But they, um, they're basically like, I don't know, almost like little go-kart structures at the bottom. So they're on wheels. And so they can ride and they're going up and down. Um, and then they can stop on the parade route and say hello to friends. Um, one thing that is crazy to me is that we still don't have a Mary Poppins attraction. For as iconic as this film is, the fact that they don't have an attraction or like a dark ride or something, even like a Mary Poppins carousel, like blows my mind that that hasn't happened yet. Um, And they, again, this was pre-pandemic, but they talked about an Epcot expansion in the UK pavilion that was going to include a Mary Poppins themed ride, like a dark ride. Um, but 
that, from my research, has been, quote unquote, postponed, most likely canceled, sadly. Um, But what's crazy is years ago when they were going to open Disney World in 1971, the Magic Kingdom, um, they wanted to create basically like sister attractions to all to some of the attractions in Fantasyland at Disneyland. So like they had Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at uh, Disneyland. And so they wanted to create um, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow attraction at uh, Disney World because that film is The Adventures of Ichabod Crane and Mr. Toad. Um, and then they had, you know, Peter Pan's flight at Disneyland. And so they were going to create Mary Poppins flight um, at Disney World. Um, sadly, that did not happen. Uh, but I would love to see any concept art from that uh, attraction that I could. I have to do some research to find some because I'm sure it's beautiful. And then uh, they just need to build it. <laughs> I would totally love uh, Mary Poppins flight. That'd be so cool. You know, it'd be amazing. Because you know, in Peter Pan's flight, you get in like the pirate ship. What if on Mary Poppins flight, you got on a carousel horse and flew? Oh, that'd be so cool. <laughs> oh, I love that idea. Uh, Disney, if you're listening, um, call me. So I also talked about this a little bit in my Disneyland episode, but on King Arthur's carousel at Disneyland, there is a special carousel horse named Jingles. Jingles was Mrs. Disney's favorite carousel horse, and there is definitely a tie to Mary Poppins um, with this carousel horse because um, painted on the side of it is the initials J.A. for Julie Andrews and a beautiful silhouette of Mary Poppins herself. So um, that's definitely connected to the Mary Poppins universe and... I the next time I go to Disneyland, I want to ask a cast member, hey, do you know about this? Uh, Because it's so fun to ask them fun questions like that. Because in my research, I've never found specifically why that carousel horse has a Mary Poppins connection. Um, And one more theme park thing, like tie-in with Mary Poppins is um, an attraction called The Great Movie Ride. Sadly, The Great Movie Ride closed several years ago at Disney's Hollywood Studios, but this was like the marquee attraction of Hollywood Studios when it opened originally as Disney's MGM Studios back in the 80s. And um, basically it was a tour through the greatest movies of of all time. So there was like a Wizard of Oz moment. There was a Casablanca moment. There was a Singing in the Rain moment. And then there was a Mary Poppins moment. It was on the rooftops of London and Mary Poppins and Bert were singing Chim Chim Cheree. Uh, So I was so thrilled. I had never ridden the great movie ride, but our family went to Disney World for a vacation together for Christmas at the end of 2015. And uh, we finally rode it. Um, And I was so glad that we did because it wasn't long after that that they closed it down. So I uh, loved that attraction and especially the Mary Poppins part because it's my favorite of all time. Um, So speaking of favorites, I I really enjoy this, what they do on Disorder. They talk about their least favorite and their favorite parts of the movie. For me, Mary Poppins, my least favorite part, I think it's just that maybe that little bit from like the run on the bank until the kiddos meet up 
with Bert. That part of the movie, and I explained this a little bit earlier, it just feels like it drags just a little bit because this movie's almost two hours long, I believe, if not two hours. And uh, But that was more the style of movies in that day to be more an extended length like that. And uh, it's not like that point, that part is pointless. It just, um, that's where I find myself kind of disengaged a little bit. Um, but that's a very minor nitpick, uh, in my opinion. Um, my very favorite part of the movie I gave away earlier, uh, is Step in Time. Uh, my favorite shot in the movie is that moment in Jolly Holiday where Mary Poppins is blushing and she kind of turns her face to the side right before the penguins and Bert start dancing. And then my act, like favorite scene in the movie is Step in Time. Favorite song? Step in Time. <laughs> Runners up would be Jolly Holiday and probably Sister Suffragette. I love that song so much. Um, so I can't believe we're like at the very end of this already. This has been quite the journey, quite appropriate uh, that we go on a journey with lots of twists and turns as uh, the story of Mary Poppins does. Um, kind of my my final thoughts and then uh, Disorder also does letter grades and I think that that's a fun little aspect. So um, this movie is, in my opinion, Walt Disney's crowning achievement. Um, it is a masterpiece. And it's not like it's a movie that became a masterpiece, like once it was released and has been out, you know, for decades now. People are like, oh, yeah, it's a masterpiece. Like, it was a masterpiece when it was released, in my opinion. And um, everyone... Uh, you know, recognizes it as such. And even just the whole story of how Walt Disney had to fight so hard uh, to get the rights to this movie, um, the whole process, it, it was quite a lengthy one, you know, almost 20 years of negotiations uh, with P.L. Travers to, to even start the movie. And then the process of filming, like this was really a labor of love. And I, I see this as like a love letter to his daughters, uh, the fulfillment of a promise he made to them when they were young. And so um, it's uh, really interesting that this was one of the the last big things that Walt Disney did before he passed away, because he passed away at the end of 1966. Um, and so this this movie is a masterpiece. The songs are incredible. The Sherman Brothers are artists. Uh, they uh, they paint they painted the world of Mary Poppins with their melodies. Um, that they created the the set design, the paintings, the the direction, uh, the performance by especially Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews is breathtaking from beginning to end. Um, this is a movie that I'll always watch. Um, it's not like I'm always in the mood to watch it, but like if it turns on, I'm in. And uh, it's it's just beautiful. I could listen to the soundtrack over and over and over again. It has had such an impact um, in culture and society. It, it really changed the way that films were made. It really pioneered special effects. You know, the movies that we see nowadays, I think of superhero movies like The Avengers and everything that they're able to accomplish in those movies. It's because of movies like Mary Poppins that chose to push the boundaries that we now have, you know, special effects like we do. 
Um, and it's, it's awesome. And uh, the message of this film is beautiful. You know, the reuniting of the family. And that was Mary Poppins' goal the whole time. Uh, she, you know, she puts on this these airs of like, yes, I'm this, I'm that. And, um, but at the end of the day, she, she wants to serve people and she wants to serve families. And I almost see it as like she has a deep cry in her heart to have her own family. And she says, but until then, I will go and uh, make other families uh, come back together. Well, I, I want to go in and, and fix what was broken. And uh, she does it in her quirky, magical, practically perfect way. And I see that so beautifully done through this entire movie. I could go on and on and on, but I will cap it here and say that Mary Poppins is a masterpiece, Walt Disney's crowning achievement, and for all the reasons I've listed, I give this movie an A+. I would not say this is a perfect movie, but it is practically perfect in every way. Um, plus, A+, plus because, you know, it's my, my favorite movie of all time, so of course I'm going to give it an A+. Plus. Um, I uh, am so grateful that you would come along... Um, on this little longer episode than normal, but uh, I really like to delve into the the details on these film interviews, not interviews, film like overviews and commentaries. Um, and for me, this is really special and unique because uh, this episode is being put together and released on my birthday. Um, and what's so funny is um, I turned 27 today and um, Julie Andrews was 27 when she played Mary Poppins. And that's just really special. <laughs> um, Mary Poppins is really important to me as a film, a story, and um, as I will go into great detail in another episode, um, a story that completely rocked my world and changed my life. Um, so... Again, thank you for coming to listen. I I just, I love doing these episodes. I hope that you guys are enjoying them. Uh, come back soon because there's more magic coming. I'm so excited heading into 2022. I have a lot of ideas for different episodes and I'm so thrilled to start putting them together and releasing them to you guys and uh, for you guys to be part of my my little world here in my the little podcast corner of my world as I always say so I hope that you have just beautiful magic sprinkled into your day today and uh yeah just know that you are loved you're cherished and uh I hope that you have the most super califragilistic expialidocious day love you guys and I'll see you real soon <laughs> <laughs>